Thank you. Prime Minister of Canada et al. versus Omar Ahmed Kader, Robert J. Freighter, Doreen C. Mueller, and Jeffrey G. Johnston for the appellants. Nathan J. Whitling and Dennis Edney for the respondent. Sasha R. Paul, Vanessa Grubin, and Michael Bossin for the intervener Amnesty International. John Norris, Audrey Macklin, and Bertie Bethel, Bridie Bethel, for the intervener Human Rights Watch et al. Emily Chan and Martha McKinnon for the intervener Canadian Coalition for the Rights of Children and Justice for Children and Youth. Sujit Chaudhry, Joseph J. R. Bay for the intervener British Columbia Civil Liberties Association. Brian H. Greenspan for the intervener Criminal Lawyers Association, Ontario. Lauren Waldman and Jacqueline Swaysland for the intervener Canadian Bar Association. Simon V. Potter, Pascal Paradis, Sylvie Champagne, and Fanny Lafontaine for les intervenants Avocats Sans Frontières Canada et al. For the interveners, uh, Avocats Sans Frontières Canada. Adriel Weaver and Jessica Orkin for the intervener Canadian Civil Liberties Association. Dean Peroff, Chris McLeod, and H. Scott Fairley for the intervener National Council for the Protection of Canadians Abroad. Mr. Freighter. Thank you, uh, Chief Justice. Justices, uh, I'd ask you to have handy, if you can, uh, our condensed book. It's the only thing that I plan to refer to in my submissions. And if I don't get to all the items in that condensed book, I'd ask you to read them anyway. Omar Cotter has the right to ask the Government of Canada to request his repatriation. Government has the discretion to make such a request. The legal issue before you, however, is whether there is any legally enforceable obligation on the government to make such a request. We say the answer the Constitution demands to that question is no, both because the uh, decision not to make that request entails no charter breach, and if it does, the remedy given by the lower courts was in any event inappropriate. As this Court has noted in both Vade and Vreen, the relationship between those who exercise various forms of authority under our Constitution is a critical issue. We are here today to ask you to recalibrate the balance struck by the lower courts between the Court's powers under the Charter and the Executives in the Conduct of Foreign Relations. To be blunt, in the circumstances of this case, the courts have no more authority to order the government to request the respondent's repatriation than they have the power to order the government to recall the U.S. ambassador in protest or to order the government to mass our warships on the Baltic in support of such a request. State-to-state -state representation is an area in which the executive holds the full range of discretionary authority under Section 9 of the Constitution Act 1867. It is not for the courts 
to pick any single possibility from among the, dis the executive's discretionary arsenal and demand that the government pursue it. What does it mean, then, Mr. Frader? When you opened, you said that Omer Khadr has the right to request patriation and the government has the discretion on how to respond. Is, is that a right and a response outside of a legal framework, or does that take place under some legal rubric? No, he, he has the same right that any other Canadian uh, has to uh, ask the government to pursue his interests with another state. But he can't enforce it if the government doesn't want to. The government has full discretionary authority to uh, decide to pursue it or not. That's the constitutional answer. And that's the answer to both a judicial review argument and the constitution and the charter breach. Is that yes. your position? Don't you have to uh, deal with Operation Dismantle and the notion that there can be these broad discretion, uh, discretionary powers of the government, but when they impact on the charter rights of an individual, it becomes uh, subject to the court's uh, supervision? I'm not saying the issues aren't justiciable, uh, Justice. Uh, I'm saying that uh, there's a, at least a deferential standard of review. But I'm not, uh, I'm not contending that uh, they're not justiciable. When we get into my submissions uh, at some point, I'm going to say that uh, the review here comes perilously close to review of the wisdom of the choice. But I'm not saying that uh, there is a uh, I'm just saying we're a long way from recalling an ambassador. Yes, but it's a question of uh, degree in my submission. If the matters are judiciable, in your view, Mr. Frader, wh what does that, what's the content, then, of the fact that they're judiciable, justiciable? Well, there has to be a charter breach found, and, and defining the charter breach is one of the central issues. There has here. to be a charter breach found if we're under the declaration aspect, but he brought a claim in two, he sought two forms of remedy. One was judicial review and one was the charter breach. So it sounds like what you're talking about falls more within the judicial review analysis. And if that's the case, is it justiciable as a decision of the minister as to reasonableness where the deference standard comes in? Yes, but, but uh, and I put his pleadings at tab one of the uh, condensed book. Well, I, I will perhaps add an, another aspect. If, we're, if you're saying that this is a discretionary uh, decision, would, uh, would uh, the minister or the government be bound by some duties in of fairness in administrative law, duties uh, relating to what we generally call natural uh, just, uh, justice, and if there had been a breach of those uh, duties, would there be a, re a remedy? Yes, as with all uh, discretionary decision-making uh, by government. But uh, uh, this case has never been pleaded on the basis of uh, a breach of uh, a failure of process. This is about substantive outcomes. And uh, in my respectful submission, I'll, I'll get to that. Uh, uh, that uh, it, it simply can't be said but, in this but case. But at the start of this uh, litigation, was there, and uh, let's uh, let's say, an aspect of uh, jud judicial review in the claim? Yes. It, it, uh, if you if you look at tab one of the condensed book, this is a uh, it's a claim. 
that in, his, uh, in the very first paragraph that the respondent's ongoing decision and policy not to request the repatriation of the applicant from the custody of U.S. forces in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. That is what was alleged to be the charter breach in this case. And in my submission, it doesn't amount to a charter breach. Does it amount to a decision that can be reviewed under judicial review for reasonableness? Yes. And, but but uh, there, uh, there is, uh, again, there is no failure of process in this case. Mr. Cotter was heard and heard many times, disagreed with the uh, answer he got. I'm not talking about failure of process. I'm, I'm asking you whether, under the Baker standard, uh, the decision can be reviewed for the reasonableness of the content. In, in the judicial review aspect of the claim? As long as uh, considering the special nature of this, uh, uh, this decision, it's reviewed on a very deferential standard. Is it, is it uh, legitimate on that review to, uh, to look at whether the decision maker uh, took into account all relevant considerations? The, yes, is the short answer. And then, if we are to look at the substantive, at a substantive review, don't we have to have some kinds of reasons to look at? Uh, with respect, uh, he got his reasons in this case. Where through and, through the newspapers? Well, through the statements of the prime minister, the the, the, the reason given. Um, and you, you really have to look at the context of the entire. Uh, relationship between the respondent and and uh, the government and the many requests that were made on his behalf because there is there was an extensive history of making requests on his behalf where the government drew the line was on making a request for his repatriation and the 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 reason given was that uh, it wanted to allow the process in the US to play out. That's a process involving serious charges, terrorism and murder. Uh, that's the reason given and that's a principled reason in, in my submission. Uh, did that uh, uh, response uh, or did that answer, was, uh, was, was that answer responsive to the considerations that were raised by Mr. Kader? which were his age, his detention yes. conditions. Well, but, but what you have to understand uh, in my respectful submission is the entire history of what the government did. This is not a case where it, this is a one-off sort of uh, request and answer given. The, the steps taken by the, the government on his behalf were many, they were regular, and they were consistent. When he was uh, initially detained, the government asked for consular access. They asked but, uh, that he not be Mr. sent to uh, Guantanamo. But Mr. Freighter, you say saying that we would have to look at everything the government did. If we do that kind of analysis, what uh, uh, what uh, uh, would what occurred in uh, Guantanamo? The participation of some uh, Canadian officials in the interrogation, the turning over of the process of the inter interrogation to American authorities, would it be a relevant uh, factor in the, in, the, in the analysis?
to get to, together with the more positive steps that were taken that were taken and that you are describing yes and and the 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 participation uh, i i don't challenge this court's decision in 2008 that there was participation in the process but what I, I, I insist that you have to do is look at the entire uh, context of what Canada did on his behalf. And I, I've set it out for you in the condensed book. Uh, you can uh, look at it at tab 11 of the condensed book. As I say, it started when he, when he was detained. The government requested uh, consular access. They requested that he not be sent to Guantanamo Bay. When he was sent, the government asked that uh, he be kept in separate facilities from adults. We asked that uh, his age be considered with respect to any charges that might be brought against him. We asked that uh, his rights be respected on numerous occasions. We met with the U.S. to express concern about uh, whether his rights were being complied with. We asked for welfare visits and were given them. We asked for independent medical assessments. Uh, we asked that he be informed of his right to return to Canada if the proceedings didn't proceed or were concluded. We asked that he be given access to counsel, to Canadian counsel, and that his Canadian counsel be part of his defense team. We asked uh, when we were informed by his counsel of, of the uh, allegations of abuse, we ask that those allegations be investigated and if they're found to have substance, that the perpetrators be brought to justice. Some of those allegations, uh, some of those requests made by Canada were done specifically at the request of his counsel. So in, in my respectful submission, what this shows is that there was a, a, a history in this case of asking and the government uh, of Canada asking that his rights be respected in a variety of respects by the U.S. Some of the requests were made specifically after receiving requests from his counsel. And where Canada stopped was uh, we did not agree with the request to seek his, uh, to request his repatriation. Now, in my respectful submission, when you consider the whole of that context, the request for repatriation uh, is, is, uh, amounts to uh, uh, simply uh, a difference of opinion on one of the possible actions that the government could take. It comes, as I say, pretty close to saying we're challenging the wisdom of the government uh, uh, position because although you listened to us and forwarded requests on other things, because you didn't do that one, uh, it's judicially reviewable and, and a different outcome should. Do we, do we know uh, some of the requests that you're speaking about were refused by the, by the Americans? Do we know whether those refusals were taken into account when uh, Mr. Catter made his request uh, for that the government request his repatriation? Do we know whether the government considered the fact that previous requests had been refused? Yeah. Uh, there's nothing in the record that sort of unpacks the government's reasoning on 
why it made requests or uh, didn't make requests. Mr. Frader, one of the conclusions that one could infer from this list of acts on behalf of the government to attempt to assist Mr. Caddy is an ongoing acknowledgement that what was going on in Guantanamo was worthy of some form of intervention which took the form of these requests by the Canadian government. Would it be reasonable then to say, although these are positive acts on behalf of the government, it doesn't explain why the next step in the face of the ongoing intransigence of the American government to comply with these requests, dealing with torture, detention, etc., um, why the, the, the next step isn't logically in the face of that ongoing refusal to then say, to then make the request? Is that an unreasonable inference to draw? Uh, it, it, it is within the government's discretionary power to go the next step. The issue in this case is whether there's a legal obligation on them to do that. And in my respectful submission, we're in the realm of diplomacy here. The government has full authority to decide what sort of requests, whether requests should be made, how they should be made, why they should be made, and what is the most effective way of uh, having influence uh, with the United States. Courts aren't in, in, the, uh, in the best position to do that. How, how would you characterize what the legal obligation was on the part of the Canadian government to Mr. Catter? Well, the, the, the answer that's been given by many courts around the world repeatedly is you have a duty, the government has a duty to consider the request. No court has gone further than that. The South African Constitutional Court in Kaunda said it's a duty to consider. The English Court of Appeal in uh, Abassi, Al-Rawi, and Fairhood Butt uh, didn't go any further than that. Uh, the Australian uh, Federal Court didn't go further than that. Uh, we've even put a case from the German Constitutional Court, the Rudolf Hess case, and Germany has a duty to protect written into their constitution. And they, uh, even in the face of a, 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 of a written text in the constitution, they were willing to go no, far than, no farther than to say there's a discretion. And, the, and, the, uh, and it, it goes no farther at, uh, at international law. Even uh, in international law, the, the uh, prohibition against torture, which is a peremptory norm of international law. Uh, the position at international law is that the state has a discretion to raise uh, torture with another state. There's no, uh, there, there is no obligation at international law, uh, uh, no mandatory uh, obligation uh, on the state. Um, and the authority for that uh, is in Al-Rawi, uh, in my condensed book, where they sum up nicely the international opposition on that. I just want to pick up on, 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 on a point before you, you, you leave it, because this is where it strikes me that Operation Dismantle is uh, pertinent, because there it was argued, as you know, there is a political sphere within which the government operates. That would include 
diplomacy, it included in Operation Dismantle, national defense, national security, testing the cruise missile. The argument was made, this is not an area in which the courts should intervene. They have no institutional competence or expertise in many of the arguments that, that you're making, and it was rejected. Yes, the court I, said that where there is an identifiable breach, and there wasn't in that case, but where there is, the court has an obligation to do something about it. Yes. I accept everything you just said, and uh, I accept dismantle. I'm not uh, arguing here for some sort of uh, political questions doctrine that's that's uh, been rejected in the past. I'm saying identify the charter breach in this case and uh, and and give a remedy if, if you can find one, but we say there isn't a charter breach. Not the charter breach, uh, the, the, the charter breach alleged in my friend's pleading uh, that the decision to uh, uh, not to request his repatriation is itself a charter breach is in my submission, simply uh, a description of the remedy he wants that's in search of a charter breach to support it. And if I can get back to my submissions, I, I, I say there isn't a charter breach of the sort that the uh, courts below found. Just two questions if I can line up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my first question is more technical. And I'm just wondering, um, from a, a legal standpoint, we have in the material a report of the Standing Committee on Foreign Affairs and International Development that looked at the situation at one point in June of 2008. And uh, the committee had recommended to the government that it seek repatriation with a dissenting voice. So my question is, from a legal standpoint, where does this fit in? Is it something we can consider in the package? to assess the reasonableness of the decision. And before I get lose the floor, my second question to you will be, the application seems to be two-pronged. It seems to be uh, 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 framed as an application for judicial review of the reasonableness of the decision. On that, uh, on that branch of it, do we need a charter breach um, to find, assuming the court would decide the decision is unreasonable from an administrative standpoint, there are certain remedies that can flow, a quashing of the decision and asking to reconsider and so on and so forth. And then there seems to be a second branch that's separate, that's the charter. Could you clarify uh, well, those two things for me? Yes. Uh, second branch uh, is the easier one because that's what uh, Operation Dismantle deals with. It's, that's what's carved out for judicial review. If there's uh, if there is a, um, uh, a charter breach, obviously the, uh, it, it can be reviewed. Um, with respect to the administrative law uh, side, uh, the answers I've given already are, suggest that uh, you know it, it can be reviewed in the usual way. Uh, uh, administrative decisions uh, can be uh, Well, I suppose accept. that, to be more precise, that's what I want clarified. Yeah. From an administrative standpoint, is it your position that it is only reviewable if there is a charter breach uh, 
that results from the decision. Otherwise, it's a non-judiciable. Uh, but if there is a charter breach, so then the two branches sort of combine in one, if we take it that view. So just I, wondering I, I if that suppose, was and, and um, perhaps uh, my safest ground is I, I, I have to concede that, that there's the charter review. Uh, it's a little more doubtful, I, I, would, I would think, about the administrative law review. Uh, but I don't think you need to get there here because this is not a case about a failure of process. Mr. Cotter's voice has been heard repeatedly of, in uh, making requests to, to make the request. The government can't be said not to have considered uh, that uh, uh, request, nor can it be considered uh, to, uh, to, to be said that uh, they considered irrelevant factors or anything. They've provided a principled reason for refusing that request. It's the same, same uh, reason that animates the law of extradition, where uh, the, the, this court has said weighing of a foreign government's prosecutorial interest is a political act for the Minister of Justice. And I submit it's, we're talking about the same interest here. The government has chosen to give weight to the uh, interest of the Americans to have a trial on serious charges. That's a principled response to a request to make a request. And so uh, there is, again, there is no failure of process on an administrative law basis. So that, uh, to the extent that uh, you need to decide that, uh, I'm not sure you do, but uh, there's also no charter breach in my submission. And Sorry, the, standing, did I, uh, the standing committee the standing, <laughs> report, uh, where does it fit in? Well, I, the Standing Committee report is what it is. Uh, the Court always considers these reports. And, uh, and yes, uh, some parliamentarians felt that the government should make the request. And uh, the dissenting voices from the government side disagreed with that. But in my submission, uh, again, we're into discretion. So. Yes, they were, the, the government uh, decision-making was informed by that, but they chose to do something else. I'd, I'd just like to understand clearly uh, what decision um, is at stake here. Um, we have uh, the Standing Committee and the dissent. The most definitive statement of the government's position perhaps seems to be, and I don't know if you agree with this, the Prime Minister's statement on July 10th, 2008, where he said in response uh, to a question, the answer is no. As I said, the former government in our government with the notification of the minister had considered all these issues and the situation remains the same. I'm looking for, for what you're relying on when you say that the government made this principled uh, decision uh, based on uh, foreign policy concerns uh, and uh, that this w uh, I, I haven't found that precise statement. Well, the statement you just read to me, I, I believe, concludes with we want the, uh, uh, we are not going to interfere with the foreign process. And it, in my submission, if you unpack that, it's saying uh, 
they can have their trial. They've got the trial on serious charges. Let them have it. The, re the requests that I, I outlined for you show that Canada's position has always been if the process concludes in any way because it doesn't proceed or it, it ends uh, in whatever way, Mr. Cotter uh, should be advised that he has the right to come back. So that uh, the, uh, we've acknowledged his right to return. The, the, the only uh, answer that's been given is let the process play out. And again, I say that's exactly what we do in extradition law. Mr. Freider, on that point, allowing the process to play out in the um, helpful chronology that you have provided, you bring us up to three and a half years ago. Do we find elsewhere in the record what the government has done since then? Yes, uh, elsewhere in the record, and I, I, perhaps I should have put it on that timeline, but following the, that period, we were given regular welfare visits. So there was ongoing contact uh, with uh, Mr. Cotter in which we made a variety of further requests that uh, his educational needs be looked at and other welfare type, uh, type things be done for him. So that is in the record as well. Um, I just haven't added it, um, uh, but I don't, uh, I'm not trying to hide it from you. I, I think it's a positive uh, interaction between the government and Mr. Cotter. I, I didn't for a moment think that you were trying to hide anything. The question was whether there was anything to hide. No, there is uh, no. And, and, and not anything that isn't there, you wouldn't tell I, I, I celebrate what's there in the record. Is there any record at any stage, and I ask the question being fully, affair, fully aware of the delicacy of interfering in the process uh, of another state, is there anything on the record which indicates um, any attempt by Canada to uh, persuade uh, the authorities in the U.S. to accelerate the process? Uh, it's been a long time unfolding. Yes. Uh, uh, I stand to be corrected, but I believe the answer to that is no. Now, to, uh, to get back to the question of the Section 7 breach, uh, in approaching the Section 7 breach question and the question of uh, remedy, if you get there, it's important in my submission that this Court recognize uh, that it does not exercise commission of inquiry-like powers into the circumstances at Guantanamo Bay, nor does it possess the remedial powers of a criminal trial judge in Canada. As you recognized in your 2008 judgment at paragraph uh, uh, 35, the ultimate process against Mr. Cotter may be beyond Canada's jurisdiction and control. Thus, you are not the court of competent jurisdiction to impose a stay of prosecution, directly or indirectly, nor are you in a position to make voir dire-like determinations of the circumstances surrounding the taking of the statements, nor are you in a position to consider whether there has been undue delay in bringing him to trial. The respondent must look to the U.S. courts 
for those remedies. And in fact, his materials show that he and others are pursuing such uh, remedies in the U.S. courts. We've summarized some of them for you at tab 14 of the condensed book, which includes uh, uh, judgments that show that statements obtained by oppression might be uh, excluded. Uh, it shows his own case where he went to the uh, federal courts in the U.S. in 2005 with similar affidavit material to that which he puts before you and asked to be protected uh, from uh, torture or interrogation. And uh, the U.S. court found that he hadn't established that there was any risk of those things occurring going forward. Uh, so there are forums to litigate trial-like issues. What's being asked here in my submission is a stay of prosecution uh, by any other name. And in my respectful submission, that is not an appropriate remedy. Now, with respect to uh, the Section 7 breach, again, it's essential in here, uh, in this case, if you're going to get to a remedy, to define the breach with some precision. Um, and and uh, just before I do that, if I can just deal with one fact, which uh, apart from my friend's pleadings is, is, uh, was critical to the uh, courts below in their judgments, and indeed it was critical to my friend's pleadings. And that fact concerns the, uh, the uh, allegation of sleep deprivation. Um, I, the the, uh, the uh, at tab one, uh, where I've uh, put his uh, pleadings, you'll see uh, in, the, in the passage that I've highlighted how important that fact was to his uh, pleadings. In tab four, what I've done for you is sum up the numerous references to that fact in the courts below, particularly in the majority judgment uh, that we appeal from. And the fact is basically this, that before the Department of Foreign Affairs official interviewed the respondent in March of 2004, he was told by an American official that the respondent had been subject to sleep deprivation in the preceding three weeks. Now that, uh, the report I've put at tab two of the condensed book, you won't find any allegations of sleep deprivation in any of Mr. Cotter's material. In his July 2008 uh, affidavit, he doesn't make an allegation of sleep deprivation, nor does he make it in any of the other affidavit uh, of his other affidavit material. What I want to draw to your attention, because it's important for the breach question, is that in reading the judgments below, with the exception of paragraph 20 of the majority judgment from the Court of Appeal, uh, you would get the impression that the knowledge of sleep deprivation affected all three Canadian interviews. The interviews that took place in uh, February of 2003, September of 2003, and March of 2004. That is not the case. The only, uh, that knowledge was obtained only before the final interview uh, by the defate official, and in that interview the respondent answered no questions. How, um, just 
staying with the Section 7 breach, regardless of whether or not it informed one or three of the, of the visits that took place, isn't it — can we look at the fact that there was the three weeks deprivation outlined in the DFATE report? Look at the fact that there was a denial of habeas corpus. Look at the fact that there was a denial of counsel. Look at the fact that he was 15 years old um, in accordance with our, our own and international obligations. It, is it the compendium of events that we can look to in deciding whether or not there was a breach in the decision not to request his return? Or do we have to do issue by issue? Well, uh, breach by or, or fact by fact. I'm not trying to compartmentalize the uh, facts. Uh, of course, you look at all the facts, but the, the case has proceeded on uh, the basis of a judicial review of non-action of the government, the refusal to make his request. So we're talking about the, the, the breach being a, a, a legal obligation to make that request. This isn't uh, a, a second review of, of the decision to interview. We're not talking about your 2008 decision again and saying, uh, let's just give a different remedy uh, for the breach that you found last time around. That's not the way the courts below decided this case, nor was it pleaded before them. If, if we were just here to say, okay, we know you participated, that was a breach, and now we've got more evidence, uh, of participation through the, uh, the knowledge of sleep deprivation. Uh, this is a judicial review aimed at giving you another remedy. You might not be here today if, if a remedy that was responsive to the nature of that breach uh, was imposed below. But that wasn't what was done. In, in my submission, uh, both Justice O'Reilly at first instance and the Court of Appeal, in accepting his reasons, uh, go further and say, okay, government, you, you, you didn't make the uh, request. Uh, did you have a duty to make that request? Was there a legal duty to make that request? And, uh, and that is the breach that was found in this case, in my submission, and it was inappropriately found, and I'll, I'll deal with that now if I can, about why that is, is not a breach. Before you get to that, you had earlier said that this was a matter of discretion on the part of the government. So taking it out of the realm of what is the breach and whether this behavior constitutes a breach, in the exercise of discretion, is it relevant for us then to consider all of those factors in determining the reasonableness of the decision not to request his return, including uh, the sleep deprivation, on top of everything else? Yes, but you're, uh, at the end of the day, you do have to make a decision about reasonableness. And yes, you look at all the facts, but, but you still have to get to what the charter breach was. And, the, and the, the charter breach has to be based on a legal duty, in my submission. And, and you have a duty, knowing what you know, uh, to uh, make a request for, uh, on his behalf. And in my submission, 
you can't get to that legal duty, no matter which of those facts you, you look at. It just doesn't exist. It doesn't exist at international law. Every single court that has looked at this same question around the world has come to the same conclusion. It doesn't lead to an enforceable duty on the government to make that request. They it, still retain their, their discretion, even if the allegation is torture. But are we entitled to review the reasonableness of the exercise of that discretion? If there's a charter breach. Only if there's a So your position, well, this comes back to the yeah. exchange you had with Justice Sharon. In your view, the only administrative law issues are process, not substance, and that if you want to look at substance, you go to the Charter. Well, that was what to this Court, in my submission, carved out in Operation Dismantle. Uh, it's not everything. It, 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 we're not into wisdom in reviewing foreign relations. We're into reviewing, is there a Charter breach? And you've got to define some sort of legal duty to, to act in this circumstance, because the, the contention is made, inaction breached my rights. And you, you just cannot get there as a matter of international law, as a matter of, uh, or as a matter of charter law. Since we are dealing with uh, the application of a policy to a particular case, aren't we more into a Baker type of situation rather than general policy? about foreign relation between states? Well, uh, is it a matter of uh, general policy? All, all, all requests uh, that are to be made to uh, foreign states are matters of uh, great uh, diplomatic import. Uh, it's, not, it's not simply trying to uh, look at one, one request in isolation from the entire uh, relations that Canada has with the United States. There, it's, I come back to, to say again, I concede that it's reviewable, uh, but you've got to find a duty. So in my respectful submission, what, what the Federal Court of Appeal majority does, uh, there's uh, they reviewed this court's decision in uh, 2008, and then they moved on at paragraphs 56 to 60, uh, which is also in, it's at tab 6 of our condensed book. Those paragraphs are key in my submission to the, uh, to the order against which I appeal, because in my submission they, they constitute acceptance of Justice O'Reilly's uh, reason that there was a duty here and the duty was breached. That's the Section 7 breach that we're talking about in this case. Um, now, to, uh, again, I, I've said there is no uh, duty at international law. Uh, Justice O'Reilly reviewed the international law and he said, quite right, uh, there doesn't appear to be uh, a duty at international law. Uh, but international law is not dispositive of the charter standard, and I say, fair enough, that's, that's true. International law informs the charter. It doesn't determine it. Um, and yet, Mr. Justice O'Reilly's methodology for discovering what the charter standard should be uh, is wrong in our submission. 
The International Law Commission, which has a mandate to uh, articulate the principles of international law and to promote its progressive development, looked at this same sort of duty, and they rejected it. How did they go about their work? Well, they look at state practice, they look at judicial decisions, they look at treaty obligations. When they did all of that, what they found was that there was no consensus to support a duty to, to protect, a, a, an enforceable duty to, uh, to have the state enforce your human rights obligations with another state. Justice O'Reilly essentially went through the same process and reached the opposite result. He was heavily influenced in, uh, in, in uh, conducting his inquiry by three treaties, the Convention on the Rights of the Child, the Convention Against Torture, and the Optional Protocol on the Involvement of Children in Armed Conflict. What's missing in his analysis of those instruments is that each of them uh, has a jurisdiction clause which imposes the obligations on the state vis-a-vis uh, -vis the state and individuals within its jurisdiction. It, it, those instruments have nothing to do with state-to-state -state representations. And the danger in, 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 uh, in taking essentially the values out of those treaties and imposing them into the Charter is that that makes those treaties self-executing. Every time uh, the executive enters into a treaty, they'd effectively become the law of the land without any, uh, anything done by Parliament to incorporate those. Parliament gets completely cut out of the equation. And in, in my respectful submission, that's an important matter of constitutional law, that Parliament uh, has a role to play. Now, apart from looking at the treaties, as I said, he looked at the foreign uh, judgments. But the foreign judgments uh, provide no support for the recognition of such a duty. They come to the much more uh, limited and, I would oh, say, reason. I, I, ju I just want to uh, return to the, uh, to the argument. Is it your argument that the, uh, that the prohibition against uh, Torture is not part of Canadian internal law. No, there is a criminal 269.1. Uh, is uh, we, we signed on to the Convention Against Torture and we implemented it. Parliament did that. Parliament implemented that treaty by uh, imposing a criminal prohibition on torture. Uh, but uh, so to get back to uh, again the foreign courts, they. they they stop short of finding such a duty in each and every case, in serious cases of, uh, of alleged human rights abuse. They said uh, the government has nothing more than a duty to consider. And in my respectful submission, after you go through the treaties, you recognize the, uh, the, the limitation on them. After you look at uh, foreign law, uh, all you find is that uh, the most that someone has is a, a procedural sort of right. And again, I say, it can't be said in this case that there's been, excuse me, a failure of process. The, the respondent has asked personally in his welfare visits that he be brought home. He's asked again through counsel, many other voices, 
have asked on his behalf. The refusal to do so is not a failure of process. It's a difference of opinion on what should be done. Can I, can I just take you back to uh, your position that there's no charter breach? Um, the respondent, if I've understood correctly, says, well, when you inter when the government interviewed, uh, the, the, the last interview, the, the defate interview, uh, took place with the knowledge that uh, Mr. Catter had been sleep-deprived, that uh, that made Canada complicit in, in something that would be uh, contrary to fundamental justice and that he was being detained under those circumstances. So their argument is there's complicity. Can you yes. tell us how you respond to that? Yes, and, and I would say uh, ordinarily uh, if, uh, if uh, say, a police officer interviews someone knowing that they'd been sleep-deprived to soften them up for interviews, it's undoubtedly a charter breach. And uh, what I'd ask you to look at, though, is the unique circumstances here. Because when Canada gets that knowledge, uh, there, uh, Canada is able to, at that time, in March of 2004, there were no welfare visits, no consular visits, the choice that the uh, Department of Foreign Affairs official had was go ahead and do the interviews and ask intelligence questions because those are the terms on which uh, you're here. Or you, you say, uh, no, I'm not going to play any sort of part in that. I'm going home immediately. Uh, and presumably to complain. But if you're going to complain to the... U.S. about the conduct, you've just denied yourself the only opportunity you have to see Mr. Cotter. So in my respectful submission, yes, it's true. Ordinarily, uh, uh, it's wrong to conduct an interview in those circumstances, at least until you're satisfied uh, that there's nothing wrong. But we don't control any of the circumstances there. But do I understand your answer to, to concede that Canada was complicit, but that they had no other choice, or just exactly? No, I, no I, say, I say in those circumstances, it, it is hard to say that he made the wrong choice on that day. And does that amount to a charter breach simply because he went ahead? I, I concede. You could, you could find that going ahead uh, with that knowledge is a charter breach. And then we're into the question of remedy. And if you're into remedy, you certainly would be looking at the fact that he didn't answer any of the questions. But uh, that's as, as much as I can assist you on that, uh, on that point, I think. Before you leave the international um, law aspect, Mr. Frader, one of the... Um, one of the instruments that the uh, subcommittee relied on was the optional protocol uh, to the Convention on the Rights of the Child, Article 7. What, are Can what, if any, in your view, are Canada's obligations under that protocol? Well, they're, uh, they're, they're again, they're jurisdictional obligations. That's, that's what we have assumed in, uh, in signing that treaty. What uh, Mr. Justice O'Reilly did in my submission is detach uh, the, the, the jurisdictional limitation from the question of the, the values uh, inherent in that treaty 
and then impose them on a on outside the treaty context. So, could you then clarify for me what you say? Any obligations? Can any of Canada's obligations are or are not, to Mr. Cutter under that uh, optional protocol? Are you the, saying they don't exist, or they are restricted by jurisdictional limitations, and therefore it, it, don't it, apply to him? If we were the detainer. Uh, we, we would have full obligations according to the, uh, the protocol, but we're not. The obligations uh, exist for the, person, the, the country that's dealing with them if they're a party to that protocol. And if, if your contention is that that party is in violation of those obligations, go to their courts and, and uh, enforce your rights. Now, Doesn't the issue go beyond uh, the sleep deprivation? I mean, really, the case it seems uh, made against the government is that you had a regime in Guantanamo uh, that was declared by the U.S. courts themselves uh, to be operating outside any appropriate constitutional framework, uh, was condemned uh, by the U.S. courts, uh, and uh, the government of Canada appreciated that one of its citizens was being held in a foreign country under conditions which that country itself has declared illegal and on that basis uh, ought to have done something. I mean, it's more than a, uh, a particular interview uh, that was condemned. Yes, but we did do something. If you go back to the uh, timeline of requests, after those decisions came out, we asked that his rights be respected. But the whole point of the U.S. courts was that they, you know, they weren't being respected, yes. and the U.S. courts were attempting to do something about it. So you're, you're leaving somebody to seek a remedy in a situation where the courts themselves have said no effective remedy is being offered. Right. And, and so the result of those U.S. decisions is that you do have uh, access to habeas corpus, uh, review, and Mr. Uh, Cotter availed himself of it more than once on, on the materials he's put before you. Uh, if you're asking me, in effect, um, uh, don't you have to give something else for participation, uh, Canada's participation that you found in 2008, uh, if that, you know, if we get back to the point that that's the breach that we're talking about here, we say that he's already received the responsive remedies to that because if, if the, if the uh, violation is participation, the responsive remedies to me are stop participating uh, or at least stop participating in that process until you've satisfied yourself that it's been fixed. And that was effectively imposed by Justice von Finkenstein in 2005 when he when he uh, issued an interim injunction to stop us from doing any further interviews. The other uh, remedy that would be responsive to participation is give up the fruits uh, that you uh, obtained as a result of that participation. But he's already got that remedy from, from you in 2008. But my point was that I think the argument goes beyond participation. It is the fact that somebody is detained in conditions declared illegal, and part of the illegality was that there were no enforceable uh, uh, remedies and or effectual remedies. 
and it is having a citizen incarcerated abroad yes. under those circumstances that is complained about. Yes. Whether you participate or not. Yes, and, and, and so now, but this is part of the problem in, I, in my submission with respect to the remedy that is imposed below. Uh, that is the state in 2003. We're giving a remedy in 2009 that fails to reflect uh, that, the, that the system has been fixed. So in my respectful submission, you have to look at that in, in terms of what's happened over the passage of time in determining if that's the breach that we're talking about, whether a remedy uh, that assumes we're still back in 2003 is an appropriate and just one. Well, it's certainly not conceded that it's been fixed. I mean, that is a, a matter of high controversy as to whether it's been fixed. And if uh, there is a question in that respect, ought the government not to err on the side of extricating somebody uh, from what was declared by the U.S. courts to be an illegal regime? Well, that, that again, the government has, uh, has done what it chose to do, which is to insist on uh, respect for his human rights, in, including a uh, uh, properly constituted trial court and a uh, number of other things. So uh, that's, the, that's what the government chose to do. The, the, the claim that's made is you've got to extricate them because what? We're going to sit in judgment uh, of uh, whether the, the uh, U.S. courts provide sufficient remedies for any of the harms that Mr. Cotter says he suffered? That's we not your role in, in my respectful submission. Could we say that the breach, rather than limiting it the way you've limited it, is it fair to characterize the breach as the refusal to request the return in the face of this context? What you're saying? That it, that it, well, the, yes, I, I say that is. But the, 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 the charter the, breach. The charter, the charter breach that he's aimed at is the refusal to make the request. But, uh, again, you only get to a breach if there's a duty to make the request. And, uh, again, you, you can't get there in international law. No other uh, court has said you can get there uh, uh, as a matter of constitutional interpretation. And, uh, and in my respectful submission, you just can't say there's a breach of the, uh, of the sort that justifies the remedy that the courts uh, imposed uh, below. Are, uh, are we uh, confusing the duty to make a request or the unreasonableness of not making a request and, uh, on the other hand, the right of the U.S. to refuse that request? So you said earlier uh, what must seem to be long ago in your submissions, uh, that there is a reasonable explanation for the refusal of Canada uh, to request the repatriation of Mr. Cotter. And that explanation is that Canada does not uh, want to interfere in the process in the U.S. Yes. Well, that might be a reason for the U.S. to refuse Canada's request. Should the request be made, the U.S. would then determine whether 
in the face of all the circumstances of which it is aware, plus the request by Canada to have this citizen returned to Canada, the proceedings in the U.S. ought to continue or not? I, I say we're not making that sort of confusion at all. The, 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 uh, what's being said here is that uh, by operation of law, we have to make that request because there's been a charter breach because of Canadian government action. Uh, if you get that far and make the request, in my respectful submission, that request is incoherent to the U.S. because the U.S. Is, oh, it looks at that request and says, because uh, Canadian officials uh, blundered, uh, we have to be denied our, our opportunity to try him on serious charges. Again, limiting it uh, in your response to the blunder, in quotes, of 2004. As Justice Binney explained, uh, that may be an overly narrow view well, of, but, but of, the, um, of the claim. But to get there, you would have to uh, conclude that, uh, uh, make a, a conclusion that the current system uh, does not uh, allow him to have a fair trial. And in, in my submission, uh, you're in no position to make that. And in fact, he can make that claim himself uh, at uh, the trial. So uh, there is a court of competent jurisdiction. I, I, I take you back to what you said in paragraph 35 in 2008. The ultimate process may be beyond this court's jurisdiction and control. It is in my submission. And, uh, and what is being sought here is an attempt to get that trial remedy. A stay of proceedings is what is being sought here. And uh, in my submission, whether you, it's direct or indirect, it's still wrong. You're saying that it's a stay of proceeding, but isn't there some kind of midway? And I understand that we're now into uh, the substantive outcome, but wasn't there other response that the government could have given, like we will undertake to uh, uh, surrender Mr. Kader whenever you will need him for purposes of trial. So I'm not sure that I'm following you when you say that what's in fact requested here is um, simply a blunt state of proceedings. Well, the, it, it, is a, it is a request to terminate proceedings because when your case is Canada has been uh, complicit in torture, bring him back, it's not like you're going to bring him back to a trial in Canada. I agree with you that there's a range of things the government could have done, and the government showed over the course of time that it was willing to do a range of things. Uh, it, it drew a line. Yeah. Uh, the fact that it has uh, other things that it can do at its disposal is a good thing. That's, that's diplomacy. Thank you, uh, Mr. Frader. Thank you. Mr. Whitling. Thank you, Chief Justice. Uh, this morning I expect uh, to be referring to uh, our factum and also the Respondent's Condensed Book, which was passed up this morning. 
Uh, firstly, as I did at the outset of the last Cotter appeal, I thought I would begin by providing the Court with an update as to the current status of the proceedings which are going on in both the United States and in Cuba. And uh, firstly, uh, perhaps I could advise you with respect to the habeas corpus application, which was referred to my, by my friend a moment ago. And if you look at tab one of our condensed book, we have an order from Mr. Cotter's habeas corpus judge, uh, Judge John Bates of the U.S. District Court for the District of D.C. And this is something we probably should have put in our book of authorities but neglected to. Uh, as this order indicates, that habeas proceeding has been stayed. So it is not advancing at the present time. And as you can see from the terms of this order, it has essentially been stayed pending the outcome of the military commission prosecution and also the appeals that would follow such a prosecution. So it's suspended rather than stayed. Well, the word in the order is stayed. I suppose you could say it's suspended. But in any event, Mr. Cotter is not able to advance that application at the present time because of the existence of the prosecution. Now, what happened after that is the prosecution was moving ahead, more or less, when we received the executive order from President Obama, which is at tab three of our condensed book. Uh, this was signed just a couple days after President Obama's inauguration. And there's a number of things in this order to note. Um, firstly, if you look on page five, and that's referring to our own numbering in the top corner uh, of all these pages, you'll see President Obama ordered that Guantanamo shall be closed by one year from the date of this order, which would be January 22nd, 2010. And the remainder of this executive order essentially uh, initiates a review process to review all of the detainees in Guantanamo, including Mr. Cotter, to decide uh, what is going to be done with each and every one of them, essentially. Options include a prosecution in the federal courts in the United States or a continued military commission prosecution or release or repatriation, various other options. If you look at Section 5, which is on page 7, you'll note that part of this process involves diplomatic efforts, that is, negotiations with foreign countries to try to resettle many of the detainees in Guantanamo. We don't know whether the U.S. considers that to be an appropriate disposition for Mr. Cotter, whether the Canadian government has had any specific negotiations on that point. But we think it's important that this is a very important feature of the Guantanamo Bay detention system. And that's why we think the particular remedy that we have sought is just and appropriate in this case. Diplomatic negotiations is a very important part of this unique process uh, as the United States government attempts to close Guantanamo Bay. I would note that it appears to be widely accepted at this point in time that there is no way that they're going to meet this January 22nd deadline. So we were, of course, hopeful that things would be settled by that point in time. That now appears highly unlikely. Then finally, uh, as you'll see in Section 7, Another thing that this executive order did was it brought a halt to all the military commission prosecutions, including Mr. Cotter's. So Mr. Cotter has a stay of his habeas proceeding pending the disposition of his military commission prosecution, and then the military commission prosecution gets indefinitely stayed by this order. So Mr. Cotter is still complete with, completely without any type of legal process, either through the habeas courts 
or the actual trial. Does your position depend on whether or not there is, in fact, a process that takes place, or is it your argument that notwithstanding whether there will be proceedings, you're still seeking a remedy? Of course, yeah. It it doesn't depend on that. Uh, We think this is a very important factor for you to be aware of. Um, I understand it's my obligation to provide you with an update of the status of of the foreign proceedings, but um, certainly it is our position that Seven, beyond seven years with no process is a very important factor for this Court to consider at various stages of the analysis of this case, notably Section 24.1, but also Section 7, for example. Um, quickly then, because... Uh, so just... your, uh, your client at the present time is in a kind of limbo with no recourse to uh, uh, no sort of any legal, legal recourse? He is in limbo, sir, and he has been in limbo for well over seven years now. Um, Now, where we're at now um, is reflected in the declaration you'll see at tab two of our condensed book. This is a declaration that was filed in several commissions cases in addition to Mr. Cotter's. And this is a declaration which was filed in support of the most recent continuance or adjournment request for that commission prosecution. So every so often we come back before the commission and there's been, I believe, this is the third continuance since the executive order, you'll see at paragraph 3 that there is a self-imposed deadline of 60 days from September 17, 2009, to decide what's going to be done with Mr. Cotter. And it was imposed pursuant to this declaration. By our count, that expires on Monday. And just sitting here today, uh, we, we happen to be online, and we've read a news report that apparently within one hour, it will be announced that Mr. Cotter's military commission prosecution is going to continue. So that apparently has been the decision that has been uh, rendered in relation to his case. We've just heard about it uh, moments ago. It's not official yet, but we expect that the military commission uh, prosecution is going to be put back on track somehow and, uh, and kick-start it again. And uh, we don't obviously understand what schedule might accompany that, uh, that prosecution, but um, apparently that's what's going to happen. Another, uh, a number of other Guantanamo detainees are apparently being transferred to um, New York, notably the 9-11, um, um, the persons accused in the 9-11 prosecution will be going to New York. Mr. Cotter apparently is not going to be leaving Guantanamo, it seems. So, turning then to the actual uh, merits of our argument in this appeal, uh, I would like to emphasize a few points from our statement of facts uh, just before turning to the argument uh, itself. Um, You'll see that at tab four, we've reproduced a report from the Security Intelligence Review Committee of Canada. Uh, This is a report uh, pertaining specifically to CSIS's interviews of Mr. Cotter in Guantanamo. We did not have this report in the courts below. It's quite recent. Um, And what is being said in this report is not something new. Uh, Can I just check where it comes and where it fits in? You've given us a general update, which is, you know, we're not talking about fresh evidence here, so we didn't stop you. But but this report, was this considered at one point? was it before anyone, or are you? It, it was not fresh before evidence? anyone. We have not brought a fresh evidence application, and there's no. We don't think there's any facts in this report that are new. 
We think it's more in the way of, of supporting what we've been saying all along. I just want to situate, was it before, is it something that came out of the proceedings before Justice Mosley or? No, or, no it came out in July of 2009. So it was not even before the Court of Appeal in this case, which was heard around that same day. Uh, maybe I'm getting my dates wrong. Maybe so it's a month What do you later. propose to, us to, to do with it? Well, um, I mean, I can make this point without reference to the report, but I think the report underscores and supports what we have been seeing throughout the entirety of this case. And, you know, if you don't want to look at the report, that's fine. But we think that the main points that we wish to make, which, which were both made in the courts below, is that when the Canadian government decided to participate in this system in Guantanamo, to go down and to interrogate Mr. Cotter to share the product of those interrogations, which decision was made roughly November of 2002, it was clear at that point that there were serious problems respecting both the legality of this detention regime, and by that I mean holding prisoners incommunicado, denying them consular access, right to a fair trial, right to counsel, and so forth, uh, and also the mistreatment of prisoners, both in Afghanistan and in Guantanamo. And, and as I say, this is, you don't have to look at this report, that's what we've been saying all along. This report simply supports that conclusion, and the committee concluded that CSIS just ignored these warning signs. They were apparent. They were in the public domain. Um, they were, in addition to this report, we've cited case law. We've cited uh, resolutions from the Parliamentary Assembly of Europe. We've cited United Nations reports. It was clear at this point in time that there were very serious illegalities that were going on in Guantanamo, and the Canadian government knew or ought to have known that these violations were ongoing and they chose to participate in the system. One of the things the CERC report also underscores, which we've always underscored, is the fact, of course, that the respondent was a child at the time. He was uh, 15 when he was first captured, he was 16 when he was first interrogated by the Canadians, and 17 at the subsequent interrogations. Perhaps this is a, a convenient point I'd like you to clarify for us because you are putting emphasis uh, throughout your material on that interview in particular when uh, there was knowledge about the conditions and the, the Canadian officials decided to go ahead. Is your application and your claim of a charter breach anchored in that uh, participation in a process that you uh, you say amounted to a, a charter breach, or is it anchored more on a general duty to protect on the part of the government? It's a combination of the two, and I, and I think we've been fairly clear in saying that the duty to protect exists, in particular in relation to the fact that these are, quote-unquote, serious breaches of peremptory norms of international law being inflicted against a child. So we say there is a duty to protect, but we think that that point is much clearer as a result of the interrogations. And indeed, in our submission, and I think, I think the Court of Appeal majority agrees with us on this point, we think that the interrogations themselves, even considered alone, constitute a violation of Section 7. And indeed, we say it's more than that. It's a violation of Section 12. And we say that that violation justifies the remedy that was granted in this case. But that has never been you know, our argument has never been limited to that point, but it's certainly been a very important aspect of our argument. <clears throat> From an analytical framework, we've been through this a bit with the appellant. 
Um, you allege that the decision of the government not to ask for his repatriation amounted to a breach, am I correct, a breach of the charter, the decision itself? Yes. And that is why it would be reviewable by the courts? Do I understand your argument correctly on that point? Well, we do. That's, that's an angle, among others, that we've taken in this case. And uh, among other things, we've said that this decision reflects bad faith in the administrative law sense. And what is your position in answer to uh, um, the appellant who says to amount to a charter breach, there must be a duty to ask? And um, it seems that the argument is that it's somehow founded on international instruments. Can we found this breach? Does it become a principle of fundamental justice that a government has a general duty to protect no, its uh, citizens abroad? So I'm just trying to – the analytical framework here is, is important to anchor your it is, it is It is confusing. I'm sorry for interrupting. I do appreciate that uh, it can be confusing because there's different ways of approaching this particular case. Now, your, your question is essentially to say to me, let's ignore the interviews for a moment and say, is there a duty to protect or a duty to make a request, even absent the fact of Canada's participation in the Guantanamo Bay system? So you're asking me to ignore a very important part of our claim. But, but um, recognizing that, we would say, yes, there is a duty to protect, even if there was no participation by Canada um, in this system. And to be clear, we do not suggest, we have never suggested, that there is a generalized duty under international law or under the Charter for the government to make diplomatic representations on behalf of Canadian citizens whose rights are being violated by foreign governments. That is stated in far too broad, far too generalized terms than we have ever stated. What we do state is that when you have, quote-unquote, serious breaches of peremptory norms of international law, such as the prohibition against torture and the prohibition against arbitrary detention. When those violations are being committed against a child who is a Canadian citizen and who was conscripted as a child soldier, we say those are special circumstances which give rise to a duty to protect, both under international law and under the Charter. Now, when you, when you look at the authorities that my friend cites in relation to international law... You're talking about the Section 7 of the Charter... I am, sir. Yes. Yeah. And and I'm also I'm also arguing at the same time about international law because, of course, international law. I think we all agree informs the charter. It's not automatically incorporated into the charter, but it's certainly relevant. And um, if you look at tab 14 of our condensed book, um, one of one of the best places to find this particular discussion. Um, is a decision, I mean, sorry, it's not a decision, it's a study by the House of Lords and the House of Commons. And this is another report that has come out recently and was not before the courts below, but which, which we think is helpful. And if Just you, as a matter of formality, do you take the position that this report and the CERC report you referred to earlier are as government documents, uh, receivable as a matter of judicial notice, or what is I, your... I would, uh, Chief Justice, I would suggest that the CERC report can be. Um, there's, there's really not much in there, by the way, of facts that aren't already in evidence. It's, this is more about argument, I would say. Okay. Uh, certainly when it comes to this Joint Committee report, no, I, there's no facts in here 
that are relevant to this case. It's just a, it's an authority, like a, like a law review article, essentially, for the Court to consider as persuasive. And so if you look at page 63 of this particular report, and, and of course, this is not the authority itself, but it summarizes the applicable authorities on this point. You'll see in the underlined passage it says, States are under a positive obligation to cooperate to bring, bring such serious breaches to an end and are required not to recognize as lawful a situation created by such serious breaches, nor to render aid or assistance in maintaining that situation. So, for example, where a state systematically tortures terrorism suspects, other states are under a duty to cooperate to bring such a serious breach of the prohibition against torture to an end and are required not to recognize the practice as lawful nor to give any aid or assistance to it continuing. So this is a very specific, very special rule of international law. And when you look at the well, generalized... But is it, uh, well, you, uh, you're referring, I, d I don't want to get too, right. uh, too, uh, too, uh, too technical, but you're referring, and uh, there is a reference in this uh, document to the articles on the responsibility of states yes, uh, for internationally wrongful acts. But are these actually rules of international law or the rules that are proposed, that are to be proposed to the, to the, to the um, state and may become part of international law at some future stage. Right, sir. Um, my submission is these are rules of international law. And on that point, I'd refer you firstly to tab 11, which sets out the articles themselves, which are cited in the joint committee report that we just looked at. And tab 11, page 53, Articles 40 and 41, those are the articles that were being cited in the study I just referred to you. Um, you'll notice this serious breaches is defined in Article 40. That is a, a particular type of breach. It's not a one-off. It's not something that just happened one time. It's a systematic sort of a violation of a principle of use cogens. And then you see the principle underlined in, in Article 41. So that's the first first place I would take you. The second place I would take you then is the Palestinian wall case, which is at tab 15 of our condensed book. And so this, of course, is the decision from the International Court of Justice. This is the Supreme Court of International Law. And if you look at page 70 of this particular case, you'll see um, sorry, sir, if you're, if you're not there, it's tab 15, and it's page 70. And uh, you'll, see that, you'll see that point is made right there by the International Court of Justice. Now, if, you, if you've looked at our factum on this point, you may see that we've put some discussion in some footnotes and so forth where some commentators have said, well, this may just be a progressive uh, opinion as to where international law may be headed. But that that uh, comment was made before this decision from the International Court of Justice. So it seems to us fairly clear that at least dealing with this specific type of breach of international law, there actually is a positive duty. Well, how do you uh, help me here? How, how you translate those international principles that you are referring to into domestic law so as to then further become a principle of fundamental justice under the Canadian Charter. Because as we know, there, there are several treaties even and all kinds of principles of international law. Uh, they don't all become automatically domestic law where 
the domestic institutions, the government and the courts, have a duty to implement them. So if you, what is your bridge to bring them into Canadian law and further as a principle of fundamental justice uh, under Section 7? That, that I need help from you on sure. that Sure. Uh, and, and I guess my answer is to say, well, first of all, of course, the Court has said that the Charter is to be generally interpreted in light of international law. Um, it, it is not necessarily, does not necessarily incorporate all of international law. But I would, I'd ask you just to look at the, the nature of this particular principle. And what it is based on, first of all, is violations of use cogens. So these are the peremptory norms of international law. Sorry, violation of? I'm sorry, I didn't Use cogens, J-U-S, and then C-O-G-E-N-S. And so these are the, the peremptory norms. They're like the constitutional norms of international law. They are, they're the higher norms. They're the fundamental principles of fundamental justice, if you will, when it comes to international law. And they don't include many principles. They include the prohibition against torture, and they include the prohibition against arbitrary detention, for example. <clears throat> so in my respectful submission, when we're talking about principles of this nature, when they are recognized as not just being not just being your garden variety principles of international law, but actually the peremptory norms of international law, then they are highly persuasive in terms of determining principles of fundamental justice in Canada. In Canada, that then you have to go beyond because your argument seems to be that those are fundamental principles that even if we don't have a specific statute incorporating them here, they're part of our atmosphere, our law in Canada. So there's no one here who could uh, torture and, and so on and so forth. But uh, how does it then translate into uh, the Canadian institutions having a positive duty to act when uh, there is a breach of those norms elsewhere? Okay. Uh, well, first of all, of course, I would go back to, to point out that we're leaving the, the interrogations out of the equation entirely at this point, which I, I hate very much to do. But Not necessarily. Okay. Well, you know, I'll be getting back to that, but if, if, we, if we set aside the interrogations for the moment, this, this court, of course, has recognized that the prohibition against torture is not just a, it's not just a legal prohibition. It's a principle of fundamental justice. In Surish, I think this court made it pretty clear that it, it is, that this prohibition is a principle of use cogens, that it is a peremptory norm of international law. So in my submission, it is... Um, now, there's no, I don't have any Canadian case law in relation to this particular positive duty that's discussed in these international law materials. Because well, you, come up. there is no Canadian case nor any international case. Well, there, yeah, there's the international case. Well, the international, uh, any uh, national court, not the UK, not the, no national court have ever recognized such a duty to repatriate. Well, no, and frankly, frankly, I would acknowledge that in the Al-Rawi case, the court um, said this isn't a principle of English law. And uh, essentially, this argument that I'm now making was rejected. Because but if, if you then look at the Muhammad case that followed Al-Rawi, it looked back and said that was probably mistaken. But uh, when you're saying that this is part of jus cogens, it's a stretch to say that it's part of the generally accepted law by all nations. Well, I suppose so. I mean, I suppose you could have a, a principle of use cogens that sort of the entire international community recognizes as a peremptory norm, and yet Canada doesn't recognize it as a, as a principle of domestic law. Nor any other national court. Well, I, 
I don't have I don't have cases that specifically say so, but I think it would be fairly clear that pretty much every court um, of any country with a with a modern legal system is going to recognize that the prohibition against torture and arbitrary detention are principles. Well, we've gone further than the prohibition against torture. We're now into uh, duty to repatriate or duty to, pro to protect. What, sure. uh, what you seem to, seem to be arguing is that uh, uh, on top of the peremptory norm against the tor torture, there is also an, a peremptory norm that would require states to come to the aid of their citizens or uh, residents that are subject to such uh, treatment in foreign uh, countries. And that's where you have some uh, problem. I think that's fair to say. I mean, the, the, the authorities that I have on this subject are the ones I've just read to you. And that, that's what there is. I mean, it's a well, relative it, it may be an, 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 an indication that international law is not yet quite at the point where you would like it to be. Even in the Mohammed case that you referred to, they said expressly that it wasn't international law they were relying on. It was domestic law. Um, I think that's probably true, but I think the court also said when it comes to international law, it does seem that there is this positive duty that has been recognized in the Palestinian you, wall case. So you, you say, though, that you're under Section 7 and fundamental justice requires uh, it, it creates the duty on the government to ask for Mr. Catter's repatriation, right? That is one aspect of our uh, argument, yes. You mentioned the Suresh case. Suresh says that uh, guarantees of fundamental justice when uh, deprivations of liberty are taking place by foreign governments uh, will only implicate our government when there's uh, a sufficient causal connection between our government's participation and the deprivation. Uh, here, uh, we don't have that. I well, mean, we, we, we don't have any evidence that anything done by the Canadian government has caused uh, the continued detention of Mr. Catter. Well, we do, sir, in my submission. And, um, and this brings me really more into into line with the question of the interrogations that are, are you talking about handing documents to the Americans handing information to the Americans from the interviews I'm talking about the fact that Canada participated in these interrogations beginning in about September of 2003 so there was this in there was this information sharing cooperation process that began yeah, but we don't know that the, the sharing of that information is the reason that mr. Catter is being detained I mean, we the, do the Americans say they've got all kinds of evidence uh, against him. That's true. I, to, to be clear, sir, I'm not suggesting that the, that the Canadian interrogations are the reason why he's being detained. I am suggesting they're the reason why he was subjected to the sleep deprivation program in March of 2004. He was subjected to that treatment by some American officials with, who knew that in the previous Canadian interrogations, the, the intelligence that had been elicited from Mr. Cotter was high-quality intelligence, apparently, and it was described as highly successful interviews from that point of view. Now, that intelligence has been edited out of the materials that are before the court by Justice Mosley. But, but you're not saying that Canada uh, 
was complicit in the sleep deprivation. You're saying that Canada's complicity was in conducting the interview following the sleep deprivation. No, I'm, I'm saying that Canada is complicit in the sleep deprivation, and I'm saying that Canada is complicit in the other violations that were going on at the time. Now, on this point, firstly, firstly setting aside the sleep deprivation for the moment, um, if, you, if you recall Cotter 1, and obviously you, you know what you said in that case better than I do, but as I understand it, this court said that by participating in these interrogations, Canada brought itself into violation of its own, Canada's, obligations under international law. The, the court did not take the next step and say those are also charter violations, but the court did say that there, the degree of participation uh, in these interrogations was sufficient to bring Canada into violation of the Geneva Conventions and also the international law instruments which accord detainees a right to habeas corpus. So in terms of the violations that were going on at that time, we say, yes, they were complicit. They didn't, they weren't the ones who captured Mr. Cotter. They didn't first put him into the system and they didn't write the rules governing the system. But they decided to step into that system and participate in it, to benefit from it, to share the benefits of that participation. And we say that is complicity. Now since then, of course, we've learned that in addition, Mr. Cotter had been subjected to the sleep deprivation program prior to the interview in March of 2004. And we also know that that was inflicted on him for a specific purpose. It wasn't just for fun. It was to make him more amenable and willing to talk at the Canadian interrogation. So it was made with a particular view towards these interrogations. And we can tell you there were no other interrogations that occurred during this period. So we conclude from that that the Americans said, okay, these Canadians are coming. We're going to prepare Mr. Cotter for this interrogation by putting him through this frequent flyer program. And Canada knew or ought to have known that that was the possible consequence of that participation. The additional information that you obtained following uh, the first case here was that the Canadian officials knew about that sleep deprivation program at the time they interviewed him. Am I correct? They, they knew about yes. <laughs> You seem to be suggesting, uh, perhaps not, but I, I want to clarify that, that they also knew that this sleep deprivation program was planned by the Americans uh, in, in, uh, for the purpose of that interview. Was, was well, that information I, all, I, provided all I can see well? from the document is that the Canadians were told that it was to make him more amenable and willing to talk. But at the time they went to the interviewer, was there a complicity before that, well, let's, let's have this Canadian, this, this uh, frequent flyer program before we get there? So they, they were not told about the frequent flyer program before they got there. Okay. okay. They were told from the outset, from September of 2000, uh, from February of 2003, by Mr. Cotter himself that he had been tortured. He told them this over and over again and they ignored it. So when you, when you look at the judgments below, the courts below have found it sufficient to say, well, prior to the March of 2004 interview, the Canadians were told about the frequent flyer program. And we agree that that is sufficient to ground a charter violation. But we emphasize it was not news at that point in time that Mr. Cotter was being abused because Mr. Cotter had told them that repeatedly way back in February of 2003. And they, and they kept coming back 
for more interrogations. Just on that issue, Mr. Kader, uh, it, it appears in the record, complained that he had been tortured, but he had not given any detail as to what kind of treatment he was subjected to? I think that's probably fair. I don't think that he gave a detailed account of what the torture was. And do we know exactly when the, Mr. Gould was told about the sleep deprivation? deprivation? Well, the, um, yes. It was immediately before the March 2004 interview. So it was before he got into the interview room? Mm, well, let's look at the report. Uh, it's at tab five of our condensed book, and the paragraph is at uh, page 27. It, it appears, you know, and the, the part about the frequent flyer programs in paragraph six. My reading of this uh, document is that it's not crystal clear, uh, but it was pro it was probably just prior to the interview. It was on that trip, I would say. I'm sure it didn't happen before because, Mr. Gould went down. To because we can infer that it was prior, but even that report does not say whether the information was conveyed before or after. Our reading of this document has always been that it would have been before the interview. Uh, when you look at the, the previous paragraphs, it's talking about a number of pieces of information that were provided to Mr. Gould in preparation for the interview. Then you'll see the next section says, the interview, and it talks about the interview. And then there's, there's things that happen after the interview discussed in this document. So our reading of it, it's, it seems fairly clear to us that this was, that this occurred prior to the interview. So therefore, from what we started off on this, uh, uh, this line of questioning when we were discussing Suresh, so uh, again, uh, are you relying on what happened on that day, the interviews, to provide a link between the Canadian government and the Canadian officials and the process that's happening in the foreign country? We have to come back to the interviews, uh, whichever way we go here, do we not? Well, um, I hope this is responsive to your question. I'd like to answer in reference to the, the report that we have at tab three, firstly, of our condensed book. Um, this is yet another report that was released after we commenced this case. And as far as we're aware, it's the first sort of authority. It's not a case, uh, it's not a judicial authority. Tab three is the executive order of... Pardon me? Tab 3 is the executive order. Oh, executive I'm sorry. I meant tab 13, 1-3. Um, this is a report of a special rapporteur for the United Nations uh, named Martin Scheinin. And this report addresses specifically the significance under international law of one country participating in interrogations of prisoners who are being held by another country in violation of international law, whether because that prisoner has been tortured or whether the prisoner is being arbitrarily detained. And the whole point of this particular report is for the United Nations Human Rights Committee, Human Rights Council, to be advised on whether this type of conduct constitutes a violation of international law. And if you look at page 60, of this report, you'll see the heading Participation in Interrogations. So it deals specifically with this subject. 
If you look then down to footnote 63, you'll see a discussion about this phenomenon generally in Guantanamo. Canada is not the only country to send interrogators there. But one of the countries that is noted by the Special Rapporteur is Canada, and we've underlined the word Canada. And of course, so, so this report is not just addressing the same general subject. It's addressing these very interrogations that are at issue in this case. And obviously I would commend all of this, this passage to you. I don't want to read it all because of its length. I think, the, I think it's summed up in the final sentence, which is on page 61, where the Special Rapporteur says, Therefore, the Special Rapporteur believes that the active or passive participation by states in the interrogation of persons held by another state constitutes an internationally wrongful act if the state knew or ought to have known that the person was facing a real risk of torture or other prohibited treatment, including arbitrary detention. So we say Canada certainly knew he was being arbitrarily detained. We certainly know he was being having his right to counsel denied and so on and so forth. Uh, and they also certainly knew well, Mr. Cotter had specifically told them he'd been tortured in February of 2003. Then they were told about the frequent flyer program in March of 2004, and they went ahead and participated in these interrogations. And at least according to the special rapporteur, that constitutes complicity. Can I bring you then to the question of, of rep, given all of that, given um, the fact that that set of circumstances resulted in a remedy in Cater 1 from this court, given the fact that no court has yet internationally accepted that there is a duty to protect, how do we get to the remedy that was imposed by the Court of Appeal and the trial court in the absence of such a duty? What is, what's the link, then, well, that entitles a court to determine um, that, that that is a proper remedy, either under the Charter or under a judicial review? Well, of course, we, I went off for a while about this, this duty to protect under international law and, and whether it arises under these circumstances. But our primary position has always been that simply participating in this process was a violation of Section 7, indeed we say Section 12, and that the, the duty, quote unquote, the duty to protect can simply be imposed as a remedy under Section 24.1 in the second half of the analysis. But that's, so, but that's discretionary. That's, that's not right. a mandatory duty. The way you've been putting it is that there's no other option, that when you've got these circumstances, the only thing that the government can do is to ask for his repatriation. Is that, is that your position? Well, that's, that's what we were spending, as I say, that was one, of, one aspect or one you know, potential approach to our argument, and that's what we've been saying. But what I've also said is, even if you disagree with me on that point, it can be imposed as a remedy under Section 24.1, and it's a discretionary remedy, and the judge in this case exercised his discretion in favor of granting that remedy. And he considered all the facts that are relative to this case, and he decided, I'm going to impose, now you could say, is that a duty? Well, perhaps it's just a duty to comply with the court's order, which granted a particular <coughs> remedy under Section 24.1. So, to be clear, let's assume for the sake of argument there is no positive duty under Section 7. Uh, there may not be. If there isn't, we say, fine, certainly one can be ordered as a remedy under Section 24.1. Uh, courts require government to take positive steps as a 24.1 remedy 
all the time. Can I ask you this, though? I mean, I think what, what's bothering some of us is the link between uh, the alleged uh, complicity that you've been discussing and this particular remedy of uh, asking for repatriation. Um, one usually expects remedies to be, to fix up, to remedy the very thing that's gone wrong. So here you're saying it's this, it's, it's, it's this participation in the interview process knowing that there was torture. Um, usually you'd expect the remedy uh, to going to fix that up. Uh, at this point, uh, there's no more recent evidence of torture or complicity. Uh, how is demanding uh, or ordering repatriation now going to fix that in the past? He has suffered. He suffered greatly, no doubt, uh, with great consequences. But uh, how, how can we s fix that particular suffering by bringing him back to Canada? Well, it, it's a restitutionary remedy. It's something that's going to provide him with with a benefit in exchange for the violation that's occurred. And it's going to bring an end to the violations which are ongoing. Well, then when you get into the second part of that, then you're into the logic of an ongoing duty to there's some continuing breach here that is going on, which is, I know, part of your case, too. But insofar as you're just relying on this complicity argument, it seems to me you do face a problem linking it, because generally remedies haven't been just given at large, whether it be in tort law or any other kind of law. They have to somehow be responsive. At least that's my understanding as a lawyer. Well, you would probably to know. The very breach. Well, I don't no. know. Perhaps you can enlighten me. But if you gave me some cases where remedies have been applied in this very broad, even restitution, I don't think has gone so far as to say there doesn't have to be a logical link. But perhaps you have authority. Well, obviously, this is a unique case, and and our submission is that this remedy is responsive to the violations, because it is a remedy which which Canada can do can. Uh, through which Canada can attempt to mitigate the harm that has caused and potentially to bring an end to the ongoing detention. You'll recall uh, at the outset of my submissions I referred to the fact that diplomatic efforts are very much a part of the process that is now going on to try to deal with everyone in Guantanamo. And many countries are making these requests, some aren't. And under this unique uh, circumstance, it's our submission that this type of request is just and appropriate for the purposes of Section 24.1. And it's responsive to the fact that this is someone who has been held without any kind of legal process for more than seven years since he was a child and since Canada has participated in that unlawful detention regime all this time. Uh, when it comes to the ongoing uh, violations that are still going, uh, Mr. Justice uh, LaBelle mentioned one of them, I think, uh, and that is the ongoing delay that is, that is going on here. Mr. Cotter still has really no access to any kind of legal process. We submit this is a shocking and unacceptable delay on the part of, of that foreign justice system. And, and to be clear, I mean, we do not uh, suggest, of course, that this remedy will definitely, or this request, would definitely be agreed to by the United States. The United States may say no or they may impose some conditions that Canada simply can't meet. 
But it's our submission that given what Canada has done to this point, given Canada's complicity in this process, this remedy, this request is something that they can do to try to mitigate the situation and to try to lessen the harm that the respondent continues to experience. Could I take you back that we have. So, go ahead. Could I take you back to Suresh for a moment? Is it part of your case that there's sufficient causal connection between the refusal to seek uh, repatriation and the mistreatment that the principles of Suresh are engaged? Um, no, the mistreatment is not the, – the physical abuse, when you say mistreatment, the, the torture and so forth, is not continuing to this point in time. Now, we certainly think that the request should have been made a long time ago, uh, but there was no explicit demand for this type of request uh, back in 2004. But to be clear, I do say that the link in Suresh is met in this case. It's a different type of situation. It is based on Canada's complicity in that process, which I've just referred to, uh, and in particular in the, in the Special Rapporteur's report. Um, just on that note, um, I would like to emphasize that... Um, so just be that sure. I'm very clear. You're saying that the absent the complicity, the simple failure to make the request is not analogous to the failure to seek guarantees that capital punishment or won't no. be imposed as in Burns? I'm saying it's analogous, but, but what the court seemed to say in Suresh is that at least where Canada turning over the, the prisoner to the foreign country is a necessary precondition to the infliction of the torture, that will certainly constitute a violation of Section 7. Now, that is not the case here. Canada did not turn over Mr. Cotter to Guantanamo. But they went down and participated in the abuse that happened. Imagine if in Suresh, the Canadian government had actually gone over to the foreign country and participated in the torture of Mr. Suresh. Uh, it's our submission that it becomes a much easier case. It's not a more difficult case. And whether it would have happened anyway or not, the fact that Canada went out there and participated in that abuse uh, it provides a stronger case for a Section 7 violation in our submission. Could I just follow through with, with the, the remedy that you are seeking? Because uh, one argument that's put against you is that, uh, well, we have to decide whether it's just and appropriate that the court order the government to do something, take a positive action in the realm of foreign affairs. But assuming that we are with you on that point, uh, would the court have the authority to go further and say you have to request the repatriation with or without conditions? Or if the U.S. would say on condition that Mr. Cotter is prosecuted here, would the government, could the court say, well, you're obliged to consider that as well? And is, or is it just you say we'd have, the court would have the authority just to order the government to seek repatriation? period, but not get into conditions. Um, well, the, I mean, the order we've requested... Then order three <laughs> would be the next argument. Right. No, I mean, um, you know, obviously, I'm, you know, starting to talk about hypothetical claims down the road is something I'm reluctant to do, but the order that we have received is the order that we have requested. And so the order re would require the appellants to make a request for Mr. Cotter's I guess my, now, the purpose of my question is not just speculation. It's just that in saying to government you have 
we're ordering you to make that request. We are in a realm that we usually don't go. We don't usually go in foreign affairs and say what you're going to do or not. Uh, it's, it's somehow linked in my mind to another area we don't go is prosecutorial discretion where we'd say, in addition, we're telling you, <laughs> agree to a condition that he be prosecuted. So is there a distinction between the two? Because I, 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 I'm not sure a court would go there and say and, and interfere in the decision whether or not a person will be prosecuted. And um, are the, the fields not analogous? Why is it that it's proper to go in the sphere of foreign affairs and tell the government to take a positive action in that direction? Well, one reason why that we say is a, is a distinction is, and so I, when it comes to the question of whether a prosecutor has properly exercised his or her discretion to lay a charge, obviously the courts will very rarely step into that arena unless there's some evidence of bad faith, uh, something of that nature. Uh, for the obvious reason that that's a, it's a decision which is sort of resistant to the expertise of the courts and the, and the evidentiary <laughs> procedures that occur before the courts. And that's a similar argument which is often made as to why courts should, should generally not sit in review of foreign relations decisions such as the one in the present case. Now, when it comes to the particular policy on the part of the appellants to refuse um, to request Mr. Cotter's repatriation. We think, of course, that's a terrible policy, but we've never asked the courts to, to sit and review the decisions on the basis of whether they're good or whether they're bad. Uh, we, we may assume, for the sake of argument, perhaps the policy up till now has been a reasonable one. Um, but still, we say, a remedy can be imposed pursuant to Section 24.1 that the government make a request anyway even if their policy has been reasonable up to this point. And so we're really, it's not necessary in our submission for this court to, to look at the, the pros and cons and weigh all the factors of what the government has done up to this point. But it does have to look at, doesn't it, whether or not, considering what the jurisprudence to date is on 24-1, whether or not the remedy will meaningfully vindicate the rights in an effective way. Asking, may I please uh, have the return, it, it strikes me, in addition to the other factors, which go to separation of powers, uh, the traditional role of the courts, the expertise of the court, all of those other five factors that we had in Doucette Baudry. Is it, is it really, f can we genuinely say that it is, in fact, an effective remedy to ask? Um, does that vindicate, given that there is, there are two answers that are possible to the request, mm -hmm. and one is no? Right. Well, I mean, my, my first response is to say, well, the alternative is to do nothing, I, I guess. So, so would this request vindicate the right? Well, it, it's the best Canada could do in our submission. Uh, clearly, Mr. Cotter is not being detained in Canada. Canada cannot be compelled to release him, but it, it is the best Canada can do to try to mitigate the violations that have occurred in this case. Now, we, again, we acknowledge it could be unsuccessful. Um, does that mean that the remedy is ineffective such that it just shouldn't be granted and so therefore we should do nothing about the violation? In our submission, uh, no. The fact that it might not ultimately succeed is not a reason for denying the remedy. It is 
you know, Canada should be required to do what it can, we submit. And it's not an argument against that remedy to say that it might not succeed. Do we have to decide in order to determine the, the legitimacy of the remedy or the propriety of the remedy whether or not he would get a fair trial in the United States such that we'd be content to have what the government said is effectively a stay of the proceedings? No. I, I don't think you would have to do that. That, you know, to be clear, I mean, our position, of course, is that this commission process that Mr. Cotter is facing is not a fair process, but it's going to take who knows how many years to have that issue litigated up to the Supreme Court back down again, and, and who knows when that will be determined. This Court has, did have the benefit of some Supreme Court of the United States decisions last time around in Cotter 1. We're probably not going to, there's been another one since then, but we're probably not going to get the other ones for, for who knows how long. But, but in my submission, all Canada is doing here is making a request. If the United States decides he's got a fair process where he is, we don't want to return him to Canada. We want to keep Guantanamo open for another five years, contrary to the current uh, executive order. Um, then they'll say no. And, um, and so why is it necessary for this court to make that decision? Uh, ultimately, the United we're not interfering with the sovereignty of the United States. You know, they don't, the, the U.S. government isn't going to do whatever Canada tells it to do. It's going to make that decision itself. So in our submission, this is not an interference with the U.S. government system. They want input from foreign countries where these de detainees are, uh, are from. But it may be an interference, as Mr. Frader suggests, with Canada, with A, with the traditional, with, with the propriety of the, of the judiciary getting involved in this, and with Canada's foreign relations capacities. So is it justified in the circumstances? Is it a sufficiently meaningful remedy that it is worth the courts engaging in what you acknowledge as a unique form of, of remedial response? Yes. I mean, in our submission, you know, I, I just finished saying that it's not a, it's not a sure thing that, if, that the request is made. But the other side of the coin, of course, is that we would not have requested this remedy if we didn't think there was a real chance that it could result in the United States agreeing with the request and saying, thank you for taking Mr. Cotter off our hands. We're trying to wrap up this system and, you know, please send him home. And uh, what would be the harm in terms of Canada and U.S. relations if they reach an agreement on that particular point? Now, you know, I don't mean to gloss over the fact that any time you order the government to do something that it doesn't want to do, then that is ipso facto an interference with its authority in that particular sphere. So, yes, any time you grant a remedy pursuant to Section 24.1, in a sense there is an interference with the government's authority. And this particular sphere is one where the government has traditionally um, been free from any kind of judicial interference. But we're saying this is a unique case. This is where Canada went to that foreign jurisdiction. They cooperated with the foreign government and in doing so committed a violation of the Charter. Having regard to the uh, traditional uh, approach of the courts not interfering in uh, foreign affairs, uh, would it not be appropriate in this case uh, to do what courts have historically done in relation to the Crown's uh, exercise of discretionary authority in uh, this type of uh, issue and issue a declaration 
in relation to the legal points which you have raised regarding the duty to protect and the uh, participation and lay out uh, by way of a declaration what the court conceives to be uh, the legal position of the government uh, without going the further step and saying to the government, here is a particular course of action which we're directing you to, to follow. Uh, would, a, would declaratory relief not be more consistent with the way courts have traditionally interacted with governments in this type of uh, issue? Well, I mean, as you'd probably anticipate my response, is that a declaration is of no value to Mr. Cotter whatsoever. I mean, it doesn't want a declaration. May or may not be. It depends. Uh, historically, governments generally uh, comply with uh, declarations. Well, I mean, if it was a declaration to the effect that we declare you should make a request, that would be one thing. <laughs> but, it, but if it would be a declaration I don't to the think effect that's that, exactly what no, I was what proposing. I, <laughs> no, what, what I thought you were saying, Justice Binney, is that we'll, we'll declare that what you've done in the past perhaps is a violation and we'll set out some principles for you to follow in the future, perhaps in future cases. And obviously that's an appropriate remedy in, in a lot of um, a lot of litigation, such as uh, Doucette Boudreau is a good example. Here's how you should govern your affairs in the future, and that's really the point of the litigation. But this is dealing with the rights of a particular individual who remains detained in an unlawful system that the U.S. government is trying to close down. And, and the fact is that a declaration is just of no utility to Mr. Cotter. I mean, he doesn't want a declaration. We haven't asked for one. Yeah, but I'm, uh, the question is as between the courts and the government, not between uh, the government and Mr. Cotter. The question is how do you manage the relationship between the courts and the government, given their respective constitutional responsibilities. Yeah, well, I mean, there's no doubt about the fact that, obviously, a declaration is going to be less invasive in terms of the government's traditional foreign relations jurisdiction. And so if this Court is concerned about intruding into that sphere, mm -hmm. then a declaration is clearly going to be less intrusive. But it's not going to, it's not going to be an appropriate remedy in relation to the charter breaches that we say have occurred in this case, in which the Court's below found in this case. And so, in my submission, yes, it is a departure from sort of the traditional role of the courts, role of the government when it comes to foreign relations, but, um, but in our submission, it's, it's one that's necessary in this case. Um, I just, uh, my time is obviously running low. I just have one or two more comments if, if there's no other questions. Um, firstly, you'll recall that uh, I referred briefly to that special rapporteur's a report regarding interrogations in Guantanamo. I just wanted to mention to you that that same conclusion is reiterated in the report at tab 14 by the House of Lords and House of Commons, which is another report that came out after the appeals in this case. So once again, we have, we have some very high authorities saying, if you send interrogators into these systems knowing they've been arbitrarily detained or knowing they've been tortured, then a state is thereby rendered complicit in that treatment, and they cited the Special Rapporteur's report with approval and reached exactly the same conclusion. So I have just uh, one minute left, and um, uh, I'm in the awkward position of having to make an unusual request. Uh, as you know, this is, uh, this is a case that's unfolding very rapidly, and um, we're very grateful to this Court for giving us an expedited hearing of this, of this uh, case. 
and it's been expedited in the courts below, and I'm in the, I'm in the position of asking uh, this court for an expedited judgment. And I know this is a, I know this is a complicated case, and I know this court is extremely busy, and so I apologize for making that request. But um, but that is my request uh, for what it's worth. And uh, if there are no further questions, those are all my submissions. Thank you, Mr. Whitling. Court will rise for its uh, morning recess. <coughs>
Mr. Paul. Thank you. Chief Justice, Justices of the Court, Amnesty International is intervening today in support of the repatriation order and is inviting this Honorable Court to dismiss the appeal. Now, as you're well aware, the Federal Court has held that Section 7 in this case was breached in one of two ways. One, that Canada participated in the unlawful interrogation of Mr. Cotter, and secondly, that Section 7 recognizes a duty to protect, which was ultimately not fulfilled. Now, Amnesty fully supports these conclusions. However, Amnesty seeks to provide this Honorable Court with a third way of justifying the repatriation order and a third way of concluding that Section 7 has been breached. Simply put, it's Amnesty's position that Canada must comply with the rules of natural justice enshrined in Section 7. Practically speaking, from Amnesty's perspective, this results in two breaches. One, the failure to provide adequate written reasons. And secondly, that the reasons such as they can be found in this particular case are unreasonable. In essence, Amnesty submits that there is value in looking at this case from an administrative law perspective through an administrative law lens. Now, ultimately, Amnesty's approach is predicated on the fact that natural justice is enshrined as a principle of fundamental justice. And, of course, this has been held by this Honorable Court in the case of Suresh. So, really, the issue from Amnesty's perspective turns to the breaches. Ultimately, the breaches stem from the fact that Canada never took Mr. Cotter's request for repatriation seriously, likely based on the view that they had no obligation to respond. It is Amnesty's yes, ma'am. But based on your administrative law argument, you're asking the court to do this extra step of substituting the government's decision for and pronouncing an order, whereas it's only in exceptional circumstances that courts will do that. When, uh, for example, when the uh, tribunal at first instance is not in a position to render its decision and so on and so forth. In this kind of case, the government is still there. It's not dead. Uh, it's, uh, it's, and there are many conditions or alternatives that may be opened uh, to the government to uh, bear or uh, blunt order. Indeed, uh, Madam Justice, the ordinary course in any administrative law approach is to quash a decision and to remit it back to the decision maker. And 99 times out of 100, that would be the appropriate approach. However, from Amnesty's perspective, we're asking this Honorable Court to consider two things. First, when this case is viewed as a constitutional administrative law argument, there is no question as to this Honorable Court's jurisdiction to order the repatriation order. It comes from Section 24 of the Charter. It may be less clear in common law. Just help me. Yes. I, I, I didn't think you were in the Charter. You're just an administrative law um, uh, paradigm. Just help me. How does the decision become reviewable in the first place? We, you've heard in the discussion earlier. Does it depend on the decision of the government uh, amounting to a breach of the Charter? Or are you saying that the decision is reviewable, because it's not every decision of government that comes before the court where we can demand reasons for 
all kinds of executive decisions. So help me, what, what puts the decision before the court in the first place to be reviewed? The, um, the, the problem um, that Mr. Carter faces from our perspective, in which is a breach of Section 7 of the Charter, is that there were no adequate written reasons. Yet the reasons that ha this Court has been searching for has come from a press uh, interaction between the Honorable Prime Minister and uh, a journalist or from a, a standing committee of Parliament. So these reasons can be taken together and reviewed substantively on its merits within the Dunsmuir framework. Now, this case becomes a constitutional administrative law case because Section 7 enshrines the principles of natural justice. Life, liberty, and security of the person are implicated in this case for a number of reasons. Two of them have already been uh, pointed to. Right, before you get there, yes. what, what then is the analytical advantage of administrative constitutional versus constitutional? The analytical advantage of a constitutional administrative law approach that Amnesty is advocating is that it gives this Honorable Court a very clear jurisdiction to order this repatriation order. If this is simply looked at through, uh, through a common law lens, there can be some doubt as to whether or not the uh, Court can compel the government to make the repatriation order. If this is viewed as a constitutional administrative law case through Section 7, the jurisdictional point is resolved. Section 24 allows this Honorable Court to make that repatriation order. Section 7 incorporates fundamental justice principles like natural justice. Why do you need the administrative law component at all? Uh, I'm sorry. What, what's the benefit? What's the, what's the enhanced benefit of the administrative law? I, I guess I just don't understand what that creature that you're urging us to consider the, really The is. constitutional administrative law creature's benefit from Amnesty's submission is remedy. In the, in the difference between common law and constitutional administrative law cases is in the common law instance, this court routinely provides or orders the prerogative writs of quashing and remitting back. Under Section 24, those prerogative writs are available to this Honorable Court to rectify a charter breach. However, it adds something more. It allows this court to consider whether or not it should order a repatriation order which arguably may not exist at common law. This is why, from Amnesty's perspective, there is a value in, in seeing this through a constitutional administrative law lens. Can I go back to your entrance door to make it reviewable by the court? It, it, I think I understand your position to be that this decision, um, executive decision, is reviewable because it, it, it it's results in the deprivation of liberty? Is that, is that your position? Indeed. And, and then there, 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 and would that be the case, any decision, um, to not ask the repatriation of uh, a Canadian elsewhere in any circumstances, or do we have to go beyond that to make it uh, reviewable by the court? Uh, the response that Amnesty has to that particular point is that what distinguishes Mr. Cotter's case from, say, a person who has been uh, detained in the Philippines for a drug charge, for example, is that the evidence demonstrates that Canada has a degree of control over the uh, continued deprivation of Mr. Cotter's liberty. This was found by the Federal Court, affirmed by the Federal Court of Appeal, and substantiated by the evidence of uh, Lieutenant Kubler. This element of control, then, in Amity's submission, allows this court to conclude that there's been a violation of Mr. Cotter's liberty or security of the person interests. 
from, again, from Amnesty's perspective, Section 7 is triggered when Mr. Carter makes the request to come home and Canada has that ability to, in essence, increase his liberty interest by asking for repatriation, whereupon there's a reasonable likelihood of his release. But if the failure is not to give reason, wouldn't the remedy be ordering to give reasons? Indeed, that is one of the available remedies to this court. However, there are, from Amnesty's perspective, special circumstances that allow this court to exercise its jurisdiction under Section 24 to make this repatriation order. The special circumstances being that Mr. Carter has been, uh, since he was 15 years old, wrongfully detained in Guantanamo Bay to the knowledge of the Canadian officials. These unique circumstances will not exist in the average run-of-the-mill instance, but it exists here. And it allows the Honorable Court to order the repatriation order. Don't you have to build that into the violation of Section 7? From Amnesty perspective... Because if you want to have a link between the remedy and the violation... The, the link, from Amnesty's perspective, can be shown whether or not there's a failure to provide adequate written reasons or whether or not the reasons itself are unreasonable. From Amnesty's perspective, if these reasons are found to be unreasonable, well, your your assumption is is that a breach of what we call the rules of natural uh, justice is of itself, by itself, a breach of Section Seven. That is indeed one of the positions of Amnesty, which, which would be, uh, and uh, uh, I I think uh, an approach that might have very extensive. Uh, consequences in the whole area of administrative law? The extensive consequences can be managed through um, the discretion that this Court holds through Section 24 of the Charter. There would have to be unique circumstances to take the run-of-the-mill administrative law case, to take it away from the ordinary prerogative writs of certiorari, to take it into something like this case, like Mr. Cotter's case. That is, in, in our perspective, how this uh, difficulty can be managed. Thank you. Thank you. Chief Justice, members of the court, there is a highly condensed book that you uh, may wish to turn up. It contains simply an outline of um, part of my argument, I propose uh, this morning to address two uh, main issues. The, the first is the question of the linkage across the breaches uh, to the remedy. Um, the second uh, is to draw on the analogy that has been proposed in the course of submissions between the present case and extradition case law, because in my submission there are a number of very helpful principles that can be drawn out of this Court's jurisprudence dealing with extradition. Um, looking first at the issue of linkage, um, the critical question before this Honourable Court is whether additional obligations to those found by this Court in 2008 are entailed by the decision of Canadian authorities to involve themselves in the American process. Uh, in our respectful submission, the key linkage that arises between the breaches and the remedy that is proposed is Mr. Cotter's Canadian citizenship. Uh, it is linked inextricably to the breaches because it was in an effort to exploit that citizenship that the Canadian authorities went to question him in the first place. 
the Americans only permitted the questioning, the access to Mr. Cotter, because it was Canadians who were coming to see him, undoubtedly expecting, as proved to be the case, that Mr. Cotter would trust in the Canadian authorities, would look to them for assistance, would be willing to talk to them. It was an essential aspect of the decision to speak to Mr. Cotter in the granting of access to him and in his willingness to speak, the citizenship was. The failure of Canada to request the repatriation of, of a citizen continues this linkage with citizenship because, of course, only Canada is in a position to request Mr. Cotter's repatriation. In our submission, the absence of a general duty to protect under international law, which has been explored already in submissions, um, is of no assistance here where we have the sort of linkage between Canadian conduct and a Canadian citizen, notwithstanding the fact that that citizen is being held elsewhere. Having become complicit in the rights-violating regime obtaining in the United States, Canada assumed obligations both under international law and under the Charter to make reasonable efforts not only to remedy those breaches, but to prevent ongoing or future breaches at the hands of third parties in relation to a Canadian citizen. And the request for repatriation is the very least that Canada can do, although arguably also the very most that Canada can do to prevent such continuing breaches. Would we need to look at evidence of uh, a continuation of the breach to, uh, to go along this? Uh, One of the this difficulties route? with this case, and I believe Justice Fish alluded to this, was how long this has gone on for. And so it's true that it may be that if we wait long enough, the problem will be solved. But in our respectful submission, it is now too late. And so even though there may well be evidence of continuing breaches, or at least, as, as Mr. Whitling put it, at the very least, uncertainty about whether there will be continuing breaches. Uh, Canada should not be taking the risk that there will be a continuation of breaches. But in our submission, what has happened to date over these long, many years um, is more than sufficient to ground the remedy that's being sought. Is it not, I mean, it's a bit of an issue here over uh, splitting a case. Uh, the participation that you referred to occurred and was uh, dealt with by uh, uh, the first Cater case. Yes. Uh, I, I, I don't remember offhand whether at that time uh, an order of repatriation was requested and, and Certainly wasn't refused, before the court. It, but it wasn't uh, uh, before the court. But uh, it, it seems a little difficult now to come back uh, and say, well, we're complaining about the same thing, but now we want a different uh, remedy. Uh, shouldn't these things all have been dealt with at the same time? Uh, indeed, although the, the, the court was very careful in my submission in the first Cotter case not to be exploring or not to explore the precise circumstances under which the interrogations occurred simply because there wasn't enough information available. And now that there is more information, although it may seem like coming back and, and trying to take a second bite at the apple, um, on the basis of the, uh, the richer record in my submission, there, there's nothing wrong with that. And we then have the continuing failure uh, to, to make the request, which um, uh, in our submission could be viewed as a freestanding breach, but is perhaps best viewed as linked to 
Canada's decision to involve itself in the process in the first place. Yeah, but I, the, the fact that there's additional the, the problem that you're dealing with the same breach and uh, the, the, the time that has gone by is really not an independent factor because had the relief been requested and obtained earlier, uh, that time would not have uh, lapsed. Yes, it is, it is the same breach, but it is now apparent that it was a much more serious breach than was understood at the time in my submission. With respect to the analogy um, with extradition law, um, it is perhaps an instructive way to test our intuitions to ask, what argument would Canada make to defend the decision to extradite Mr. Cotter were he to have been in Canada and the Americans were to request his extradition not for a regular criminal trial, but for him to stand trial under the process that was in place in 2002 and 2003 in Guantanamo Bay. We can imagine those arguments being that this is a matter of executive discretion. This is a matter of international relations. This is an area in which the courts are not competent to adjudicate. You should leave us to exercise our discretion as we perceive Canada's best interest to be as a matter of foreign relations. Those arguments, I would hope, would find little traction with this court. I find some attraction to the analogy, except that in extradition we do have uh, a clear jurisdiction. The person yes. is here, there's a committal hearing, the judge would be hearing about the process, would have the jurisdiction to entertain some charter uh, applications and so on. So, um, and and my, um, Justice, uh, Justice Sharon, you're absolutely right that, that it is an analogy that only goes so far because of the presence of the person in Canada. My submission, though, is that that is, at the level of principle, an accidental feature when we have the situation of this case where Canada has involved itself in the process. If it was simply a matter of the person being in the other jurisdiction with no involvement by Canada, then I, I grant you that the interesting aspect of the analogy would fail. I suppose your, your analogy is at the level where a court, and we have, um, uh, a court says to the minister, you must seek yes. um, an assurance that ab, the death ab, penalty That is exactly happen. the point that I wish to stress. The, and indeed, as a matter of interference in international relations, the uh, jurisdiction of the court is arguably greater than is proposed here, because if the minister uh, did not ask for such an assurance, the extradition would be stayed and the foreign state would be deprived entirely of any opportunity to prosecute the person. Equally, if the foreign state failed to produce the necessary um, assurance, for example, it would be deprived of the very opportunity to prosecute the person. That has not happened here. The Americans have had every opportunity to treat Mr. Cotter fairly, and they have failed utterly uh, to do so in our respectful submission. Um, with respect to extradition, uh, intervention by the courts is limited. I certainly grant you that in light of the late case. Um, ordinarily, um, it is reviewed on a matter of, uh, on a standard of reasonableness, where as long as the choice that's made comes from within a range of reasonable alternatives, there will not be intervention or interference by the court. But in the unusual circumstances of a case such as this, just like a case involving torture or the death penalty in extradition law, those can become controlling factors, as this court recognized in Burns and in the deportation context in Suresh, where by virtue of being a controlling factor, it limits the range of reasonable alternatives, perhaps even to a single 
decision as the being the one that is permissible uh, under the Charter. Um, that's, that's, that goes to remedy. That's an effective remedy in those circumstances. We will not permit the extradition unless we have a guarantee from you uh, that there will be no death penalty. Yes. How compare that to the kind of remedy that's being sought in this case. How effective is that? The, well, it, it is a much more effective remedy. And by virtue of the fact that Canada is not holding Mr. Cotter, um, there is relatively little that it can do, although Mr. Whitling has already um, uh, alluded to the evidence that the, um, the Americans are looking for some help uh, in this area and that a, a request for repatriation may well be met favorably. This is, to a degree, speculative. But why take the chance? Why not at least ask and see what the answer might be? But I, I certainly agree that Canada's ability to, uh, to create a more effective remedy is, 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 is quite stronger in the extradition context. But as a matter of principle, it is a very profound uh, intrusion into the very executive discretion um, that the Crown relies on here, and this Court um, has found that to be entirely appropriate. Thank you, Mr. Norris. Thank you. Ms. Chan. <coughs> Good morning, Madam Chief Justice, Justices. This case is about children's rights in the most essential way. And the focus of our argument is raised by the age of Omar Khadr. The Canadian Coalition for the Rights of Children and Justice for Children and Youth will make submissions on two main points. First, the plight of Omar Khadr is heartbreaking because the, instead of protecting one of its children, the Government of Canada violated his rights under Section 7 of the Charter. And second, that the Government of Canada's behaviour has been entirely inconsistent with the fundamental principle of Canadian law to act in the best interests of a child. We submit that violations of international human rights law are violations under the Charter. I refer you to paragraph 6 of our factum, which makes reference to the Canadian Foundation and Baker cases. The Canadian Foundation and Baker cases make clear that rights under the Charter must be interpreted to comply with international treaty obligations and that children's rights, including attention to their interests, are central humanitarian and compassionate values in Canadian society. With respect to Section 7 of the Charter, we submit that any and all actions that are contrary to human international human rights laws are contrary to those principles of fundamental justice, especially international human rights obligations to which Canada is a signatory, since Canada's international promises set minimum standards for the protection of children. Further, we submit that charter rights are enhanced rights when applied to vulnerable children. The articulation of Omar Khadr's rights to life, liberty, and security of the person in international law are set out in the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child and the optional protocol to that convention on the involvement of children in armed conflict, international agreements that Canada supported and ratified. These articulations are further prescribed in other international declarations as set up in paragraphs 18 to 30 of our factum. All of these various international treaties and declarations have established a clear set of consistent legal obligations about how child soldiers are to be treated, a clear set of international obligations which Canada has not lived up to. Under the optional protocol, a child soldier includes anyone under 18 and includes a child recruited by a non-state armed force. Also mandated under the Convention Optional Protocol is a clear and absolute duty to protect children by calling on states to do everything feasible to provide assistance 
for the rehabilitation and social reintegration of their child citizens who've been caught up in armed conflict. And to take appropriate measures to promote physical and psychological recovery and social reintegration of the, of the child victim. The duties of this government, the government of Canada, to do everything infeasible requires taking all necessary steps to protect this child, return this child, understand this child is a victim of offenses against international law, rehabilitate this child, and ensure this child can function as part of society. While the government of Canada has been a signatory to all of these international treaties and declarations, it has not only failed to meet any of these obligations, and has failed to properly protect this child from the start. We know that there was only one diplomatic note about Omar Khadr's age sent to the American authorities before the first set of interrogations were held. We submit. Can you help us how we, because we posed the question earlier, but can you help us how we take these international uh, principles into domestic law such that they are enforceable here? Because you're saying the government didn't do anything, although the government is a signatory to these instruments. So, um. Our link relates to um, this court's findings previously that domestic um, requirements and legal obligations are to comply with international obligations, unless to do so would be inconsistent with domestic law. With respect to our second submission, which starts at um, paragraph 31 of our factum, um, with respect to children, it's a principle of fundamental justice that the government can honors these international obligations. Both Article 3 of the Convention and fundamental justice requires that the primary consideration in all decisions concerning children must be made in the best interests of the child. There are no exceptions. This principle recognizes children as vulnerable citizens with restricted choices and options. As is typical of children, um, the most life-influencing decisions in Omar Khadr's life in more than a decade were made by his parents and then the American government and for the last seven years, um, the government of Canada, which has failed to ask for his return. Our position honors this court's history um, of treating children with enhanced protection, enhanced respect for their rights. Um, again, I turn you back to the Baker and Canadian Foundation cases. The articulation application of the best interests of the child principle with respect to a child soldier is provided for in the optional protocol. This requires um, that in Omar Khadr's best interest considerations, um, he be considered first and foremost as a victim. And there's a clear and absolute duty on this government to take steps to protect him. What do you say about Mr. Khadr's submission that there is a jurisdictional limitation in the optional protocol that uh, excludes its operation to Mr. Khadr? We're not asking for this court to make um, an order against the U.S. government. It's an order restricted to what can be done within the powers of the government of Canada. So we're not asking, for, it is within the jurisdiction of the government of Canada to be making this request. Thank you. We submit there's been no consideration of Omar Khadr's best interests. Even after the Government of Canada was told he'd been tortured, no such protective steps were taken. 
Um, and to reiterate the appellant's answer to um, an earlier question about any attempts to accelerate the American process, the answer was no. Um, Canadian authorities have not um, taken any steps as far as we know. Um, instead of recognizing him as a victim, the government of Canada interrogated him. Instead of asking for his return, they permitted and continue to permit the incarceration of a young child victim of armed conflict. This government would never allow a Canadian child on Canadian soil to be held, tortured, and interrogated in this manner. All consideration, a full consideration of Omar Khadr's best interests require a remedy. This is an exceptional case with extraordinary circumstances. An exceptional remedy for this situation is sought. Um, there's been a violation of the convention, the optional protocol, and his rights on the charter. The remedy we ask for is to seek repatriation. If there are no further questions, those are submissions. Mr. Chaudhry. Uh, good morning, Chief Justice. Uh, my submissions are on remedy. And so let me just state at the outset that the assumption uh, in our submissions is that the breach is the interrogation that took place after torture. And I refer you to the fact uh, of both uh, the respondent but also many of the interveners who have made, made that point. Uh, what, what I want to do uh, instead is to talk about, to respond to Mr. Justice Binney's question about the nature of the relief. And so... Uh, Mr. Justice Binney posed this question to Mr. Whitling, which is this. Should we not be issuing declaratory relief here? That is, why should we be issuing mandatory relief? And so, uh, and that in our submission is really at the heart uh, of the issues at, at this appeal. And so the, uh, and so the, if I could, re, if I could paraphrase uh, Mr. Frader's argument, Mr. Frader's argument for deference largely played out here as an argument about non-justiciability, but really it's an argument about remedial deference. And it's an argument that the court should defer through the use of declaratory relief. And so our response to that, um, to that submission is really, I think, provided by Justice Abella's question to Mr. Frader. That is, have we not reached the point where it's necessary to issue this order? And so the question is, how can we go about setting out a framework whereby the court in the foreign affairs context, in which it hasn't adjudicated very often under the Charter, can set out some principles to guide when it should use declaratory relief and when it should use mandatory relief. And so these submissions are at paragraph 10, uh, begin at paragraph 10 of, of our factum. And so uh, let me just first say, uh, establish a couple of points. The, the first uh, is that, of course, uh, mandatory relief is available under the Charter. Uh, moreover, Burns clearly establishes that it's available in the foreign affairs context. So, but the question is, when is it available? And so what we set out at a paragraph uh, on page 5 of our factum are three arguments for why the normal approach should be uh, to begin with declaratory relief and then proceed to mandatory relief. So the first argument is one of crown expertise and the idea that courts might damage comedy 
because of their relative inexpertise in the area of foreign relations. Uh, the second is that there might be issues of legal novelty where the Crown has not been on notice of novel legal duties, which with it has not had a chance to comply. So that's a Doucette-Boudreau kind of argument. Uh, and then the third uh, is that there's a general presumption of declaratory relief is reasonable uh, if the rights claimant has not been impeded in seeking timely access to the courts. And so that means the courts can first intervene uh, with declaratory relief and then escalate uh, to mandatory relief. And so what we argue in our factum is that none of these factors apply uh, in this appeal. So just on the issue of comedy, uh, which begins on paragraph 12, uh, what we argue is that the remedy would not damage comedy between the United States and Canada uh, for the following reasons. Uh, first, uh, Burns said, and the Federal Court of Appeal in this appeal affirmed, that to raise arguments of comedy, the Crown must support those arguments with evidence. And it has adduced no such evidence. Uh, point number two, uh, under international law, all states have the right uh, to assert diplomatic protection on behalf of their nationals, and all states who receive such requests have an obligation to consider such requests, and those requests are not considered violations of comedy. In fact, the United States government, both in the executive order that my friend Mr. Whitling pointed you to, and in its own submissions in the lower court in Rasul and Bush, has highlighted diplomatic protection as the appropriate mechanism for protecting the rights of detainees. So it itself has opened the door to these representations. And in fact, as we know from the evidence, it has received many such representations and in every case in which a Western country has requested the repatriation of its nationals, those requests have been successful. That's and there's no, sorry, Ms. Go ahead, yep. please finish your sentence. Okay. Um, so, that's what, would you like to ask your question about that now, or? It depends on how good the rest of your sentence was. Okay. <laughs> I guess we'll never find out, so. <laughs> you, you acknowledge fairly in your factum, Mr. Chowdhury, that the United States is free to grant or deny such a That's request, correct. and that all of the representations made by other governments have been done through diplomatic channels. That's right. Given that these are traditionally Ha, even in the case of Guantanamo, being done not because a court has ordered a government to request, but because governments have discussed with one another and that the Americans are free to accept or reject mm -hmm. a request in the particular circumstances. How effective mm. is this as a remedy given the fact that it violates clear what have traditionally been seen to be clear separation of powers issues. Well, as a matter of international law, uh, the Barcelona Traction case is says that international law is entirely indifferent on why it is that governments make diplomatic representations to each other, whether they are obliged to as a matter of domestic constitutional law or statute, or whether they make such representations in the exercise of their political discretion. And so I, th I would say that the, the United, as a matter of international law, the United States should be entirely indifferent as to whether the, the request comes from the government of Canada absent a court order or whether a court order is the reason why the government of Canada makes that request. It should make no difference to the United States because from their perspective, we are one country, Canada. And this is a dispute that's being worked out among the different institutions of the Canadian government. But from the international realm, the, the the United States deals with us singly. And so how the, how the request is generated is not really material uh, to whether the United States will treat it fairly or should treat it fairly under international law. Can I bring you back to your point where yes, you said sure. um, there's no evidence here that this remedy would do harm to the, uh, the relations. Um, I, I guess what uh, 
the difficulty I find is that courts do not usually get involved in foreign mm -hmm. affairs and dictate how the government is going to do or not do things. Mm -hmm. um, but you're saying th there's no harm here because it would not uh, it would not harm the relationships. But is it a question of damage? It's just the question that the courts do not go out there at all because right. to even go to the point to say this would not damage the relations is putting us right in there to evaluate the 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 wisdom or lack thereof of the decision. Well, look, it, it is certainly the case that, and so there have been questions that Justice Deschamps and others have raised about how this case is novel. That is, there is no other court, whether the German Constitutional Court or the South African Constitutional Court or the English Court of Appeal that has actually ordered this type of representation. And so what we would say to that is that those cases are all distinguishable. First of all, in none of those cases was complicity alleged on the part of the, of the state of the national. That is what is alleged here. Um, secondly, uh, in none of those cases had the discussion already been initiated. And again, uh, it is a finding of fact in Mr. Justice Mosley's reasons, referred to in the Court of Appeal, in this appeal, that the American authorities have already initiated discussions with Canada regarding the return of Mr. Cotter. And so it is not the case that this court would be ordering Canada to initiate a new conversation. Rather, it would be ordering Canada to continue a conversation that, that the Americans have already opened. Very different from Abbasi and Al-Rawi. Telling them how to continue the conversation. A bigger part. Telling yes, them how but to. to, to yes, but, but not that the, it's a new topic. I mean, in Abbasi and Al-Rawi, in, in Abbasi and Al-Rawi, the, the implication of the evidence tendered by the Foreign Office was that this is an issue that had not been raised by the Foreign Office with the Department of State for diplomatic reasons. But this issue is already on the table, and that evidence has not been contradicted. The, the other thing that's different about, between this case and Abbasi and al-Rawi is that now the American administration has issued an executive order that, that Guantanamo Bay will be shut down by January 22nd, 2010. And although Mr. Whitling says that that deadline might not be met, we have to take the order as it is on its face, and the United States is actively engaged in seeking to repatriate uh, all of the detainees in Guantanamo. That doesn't mean that they don't prefer to have him in a prison in the U.S. They, they, they may, you know, we don't know. We don't know. We, we certainly don't know, but there's no harm in asking that he be. But the fact that the, there are proceedings ongoing in the United States and that Mr. Khadr might face ongoing legal jeopardy either in the civilian or criminal justice system, we don't know, or the military justice system in the United States, does not mean that we shouldn't issue an order to Canada to make representations to the United States. And to Justice Abella's question, well, this order might not be effective if the Americans say no. It, it, would be effective, it, it, it would be effective in this sense. First of all, it would change Canada's behavior, right? The order is directed at Canada, and to this point, Canada has opposed any attempt to seek to assist Mr. Carter return to Canada. This would change Canada's behavior as a matter of constitutional obligation. Uh, secondly, it is a procedural remedy, right? And so with, uh, as is the case in all procedural remedies, there's no guarantee of a specified outcome. It's a right to a process in a way. And so in this case, the, the, it's a right to Canada making, to negotiating in good faith uh, with the United States government to seek to have Mr. Carter return. Um, if there are no other further questions, thank you.
Thank you. I must concede, uh, Chief Justice and Justices, I'm facing the intervener's frustration of being in the bottom third of the batting order. And as a result, uh, there are certainly comments that have been made that I adopt and uh, on behalf of the Criminal Lawyers Association. But at the outset, I, I'd like to address uh, a question that Justice Binney put to Mr. Norris uh, earlier, and that was with respect to going to the well twice uh, and whether this represents that concept. In our respectful submission, uh, in Cutter 1, what really was before this Court was analogous in criminal law terms uh, to a third-party record application. And that was really the nature of what was brought before this Court. It was a request for disclosure following the charges that were brought against Mr. Cotter in the United States. So that at that point, the request was for disclosure and the remedy was not a charter remedy, although charter notions were, uh, were raised uh, and invoked. At the end of the day, uh, this court held that it was not necessary to conclude that handing over the fruits of the interviews in the case to the United States officials constituted a breach of Mr. Cotter's Section 7 rights. In our submission, in fact, the disclosure of the interview product to the United States against the backdrop of complicity and torture did invoke those Section 7 rights. And at this point, the release sought is a Canadian remedy for a Canadian charter breach. And in that sense, when one looks to the evolution, perhaps, of this notion, it's really, in many ways, telegraphed by this Court's judgment in hate. And in our respectful submission, the resolution of the appeal begs the question intentionally left unanswered in hate and partially addressed in Cutter 1. In hate, Justice LaBelle from the majority said, I'd leave open the possibility that in a future case, participation by Canadian officers in activities in another country that would violate Canada's international human rights obligations might justify a remedy under Section 24.1. And Justice Binney in dissent said issues of, of more far-reaching importance will soon confront Canadian courts, especially in the context of the war on terror and its progeny. Well, in fact, quite prophetically, the majority and both dissenting opinions in HAPE predicted that this case would soon come before this court. And despite the differences in the majority and dissenting judgments as to whether or not that ought to have influenced the outcome in HAPE, the court unanimously appreciated that a violation of the charter by a Canadian state actor, even in the context of an extraterritorial act, was not only subject to the charter in a prescriptive sense, but was subject to its enforceability when the conduct of Canadian officials involved in a process that violated Canada's international obligations had taken place. So in our submission on behalf of the Criminal Lawyers Association, HAPE established the backdrop against which the extraterritorial, ap extraterritorial application of the Charter, which was acknowledged by this Court in Qatar, must be viewed. Now the in terms of remedy, the, the Government of Canada has expressed the view that repatriation as a remedy is not only extraordinary and improper intrusion upon our relations with foreign states, ineffective, 
That characterization in our submission misconceives the remedy of requesting repatriation, which in its proper context is not an extreme remedy, but consistent with the hate principle of enforceability, even in the extraterritorial setting. When a Canadian state actor breaches Canada's principles extraterritorially, our government must be required to take what is in fact a modest remedial step to seek the consent of the foreign jurisdiction to the Canadian remedy for a Canadian citizen. Obviously, those remedies are limited and perhaps even have to be creative when the Canadian breach by a Canadian state actor takes place extraterritorially. But in Hape, the majority of this court held that Canadian law cannot be enforced in another state's territory without that state's consent. Well, that's what the remedy, that's the remedy that's being sought, seeking the consent to enforce the Canadian remedy. In our respectful submission, in fact, that it's not a matter of asking ye shall receive, it's asking ye may receive. And at that point, we will never know unless we ask. So that the remedy under review ordered by Justice O'Reilly is consistent with the ability and viability of an enforceable remedy. Although Canada can't require the foreign government to comply, a proper application of Section 24.1 dictates that minimally the government of Canada make the request for repatriation imposing an enforceable Canadian remedy. Now, as well, the converse, if, if enforceability cannot occur without the state's the foreign state's consent, then it must be that the converse is true, that the Charter can be enforced once the foreign state consents to its enforcement. The request for repatriation must be understood as a request by Canada that the foreign state consent to the enforcement of our remedy for a constitutional violation by Canadian officials. Given that the actions of Canadian officials triggered the application of the Charter, it's appropriate that Canada as a remedy for the ensuing breach, be required to take steps to enforce the Charter. you see any limitations, Mr. Greenspan, to the ability of the courts to order remedies of the state uh, in connection with, assuming there's, we're talking about the uh, Canadian citizen being involved, in connection with um, foreign affairs? Well, I, I think that... I th I think that we don't have to deal with all foreign affairs. I don't think that there is any limitation on the order when, in fact, there's been a breach of our international human rights obligations. And that's been held to be the case here. So we have a finding that, that what occurred was in breach of Canada's international human rights obligations and the uh, as signatories to, to various uh, international agreements. As a result, that triggers the necessity for a remedy when the Canadian state actor is engaged in the conduct extraterritorially. And as well, there, there's a, another and perhaps an added advantage that takes place, and this was also referred to in HAPE uh, and has, uh, has, I think, a resonance with respect to what occurred here, and that is there was a concern expressed by Justice LaBelle, and indeed, uh, in terms of, and, and reflected as well in the dissenting judgment of Justice Basterash, that there was no guideline 
There was no ability to dictate to the state actor, the Canadian state actor in the foreign jurisdiction, as to what rules ought to apply in relation to the, uh, uh, the investigations or whatever interviews took place in the foreign state. This remedy by Canada uh, has perhaps a declaratory expression to Canadian state actors that their actions in the foreign state must nevertheless comply with Canadian standards as expressed in our constitutional norms. Can I just Thank bring you. you back? I didn't want to interrupt your flow, but on this uh, issue of uh, uh, two bites at the cherry, and you say, well, CADR 2008 can be seen as a request for third-party records. But I think the point that's made by uh, the, uh, the government is, uh, yes, that was uh, the proceeding, and a remedy was granted in relation to that request, and that's done. So the analogy would be that having made a request for third-party records, having got relief, uh, some years later, the accused turns around and asks for a stay of proceedings based on the uh, fault which has allegedly been remedied. That seems to me the problem of putting this whole case on the basis of participation. The, the fault that had been remedied was simply a request for disclosure. But that was the issue that was taken by Mr. Catter in that situation. He could have framed it more broadly, as indeed is being done here. As I understand, Cutter, one, and again, I think it's been said before, I'm sure your understanding is, is clearer than mine. But as I understand, Cutter, one, the request was for disclosure, although uh, the, the uh, invocation by this court of its supervision over uh, Canadian actors who were engaged in that conduct overlaps with the, the uh, complaint made here and the remedy sought here. But that simply was as part of, 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 of a, an opportunity to, uh, to seek the disclosure for purposes uh, of the foreign uh, action. And therefore, it was really in the context of the third-party record application that, that uh, the whole notion was advanced at that time. Here we have, for the first time, uh, an application to seek a remedy for, in fact, the charter breach itself. And the charter breach itself involves uh, really a litany of complaints uh, that uh, have been presented to you and, indeed, which uh, Justice Binney, you summarized uh, during the course of Mr. Frader's argument. There are a series of complaints, and there are a compendium of complaints, and those complaints cumulatively have come before this Court as charter breaches by Canadian state actors in an extraterritorial context for which the remedy must be a Canadian remedy in circumstances where one is only questionably enforced, certainly not enforceable, but in our respectful submission should be sought. Thank you. Waldman.
Yes, I, I had prepared to address the Charter, but with leave of the Court, and given that I do mostly administrative law, I would like to address some of the administrative law issues that were raised. Is that acceptable? <laughs> I hope I'll be relevant, and I'm sure if I'm not, you'll tell me. So the first question is asked is, how is this a reviewable decision? And I think the answer is simple. It's reviewable because of the definition of a decision. This is a federal court decision in the Federal Court Act. Any decision of a federal court or tribunal and uh, officials of the state are, are prime ministers is a, is a tribunal. So therefore, I'll it's stop you on relevance here because the, the question is: it reviewable? Is not the reviewable the decision of the federal court that's reviewable, but the decision no, no. of the government? I'm yeah, the, the prime minister's decision is a reviewable decision based upon the definition of decision in the federal court act, right? So it's a decision of a, a federal board or tribunal, and it's therefore subject to judicial review. There is some disagreement in the jurisprudence as to whether, in fact, the court should decline to review decisions which involve the executive prerogative. In the United Kingdom, I think the case law and the line of uh, case law says it's, it is reviewable. In Canada, there is, uh, for example, the Ontario versus Black case, where the Ontario Court of Appeals said that high decisions of the prerogative were not reviewable. However, in that case, the court said that when the decision affects the individual rights of a person, even though it's a prerogative decision of the executive, it's subject to review. So I would submit that there's absolutely no doubt, given the nature of this decision, that this decision is subject to review. My friend has already conceded that there were reasons provided, and he took you to the reasons, which was a statement of the Prime Minister. If we have a reviewable decision and reasons, it's, uh, it's open to the court to apply general administrative law principles. The first issue that needs to be addressed in an administrative law context is what are the principles of fairness that apply. Um, my friends from Amnesty International raised that. that is there a duty to hear, a duty to disclose, to review submissions, to provide reasons? I think in the context of the case before you, though I adopt the submissions of Amnesty International, we don't necessarily need to disclose that, uh, decide that, because we have here a situation where the, the Prime Minister gave his reasons. So, for, therefore, there is no need at this point to ask whether there are or are not reasons. We have the Prime Minister's reasons for decision. As this Court held in Dunsmuir, when, when, the, when a tribunal renders a decision, there are two standards of review, reasonableness and correctness. Given the nature of, of the decision, I would accept that it's afforded a high degree of deference, and I would accept that it's, uh, but it, and it's subjected to a reasonableness standard. If that's the case, Mr. Waldman, is it your position, assuming that it's a decision that is reviewable, is it your position that it is unnecessary for the purposes of the administrative law review to reach a conclusion one way or another as to whether there is, in fact, a specific charter breach, that the reasonableness can consider the whole history, or does there need to be a breach, as some no. of the interveners have mentioned? I, my, my, my respectful submission is there are two ways you can look at this. One is through the lens of the Charter, which I did in my submissions, and I would love to be able to address them here. The other is through the administrative law lens. Now, I understand my friends from Amnesty International were suggesting a third position. Uh, I take no view on that. I'm, what I'm going to try to do in my six minutes and 20 seconds left is try and uh, give you an administrative law analysis. Just strict administrative strict, law. Strict administrative Okay, thank you. Could I just clarify one point then? You said it was reviewable because the decision affects 
a right, or is it your position that there, not, there need not be a charter breach for the decision to be reviewable from a straight administrative? Right. It's a if you go back to the basic principle, decisions are any decision uh, of a federal board or tribunal is reviewable. And but we're it's not subject to judicial federal, review. It's not that it, this is not a federal board or tribunal. The Prime Minister is a federal board or tribunal if you look at Section 2 of the Federal Court Act. Andy, well, any decision of the Prime Minister on any subject right. is reviewable? Right. Uh, that's my court? position. But the, there's a basic principle that most decisions the Court will, will not review them because uh, decisions of the Prime Minister, some are reviewable, some are not. It depends on the nature of the decision. Decisions of a, an executive nature, uh, executive prerogative, it's accepted that in Canada, based upon Ontario versus Black, that the Court should not review those decisions. However, in Ontario versus Black, the Court of Appeal said when individual rights are affected, then the, subject, the, the uh, policy decision made that affects an individual right becomes uh, reviewable. Okay, and on this, when you say affect a right, does it, uh, must it be a breach? Must the decision amount to a breach or simply affect? No, that's not what they said in black. A right? A, a charter right. right? Not a charter right, a right. A person, an individual, as opposed to a policy decision about whether we, uh, whether we declare war or not. A decision of the government of Canada that affects an individual person's right is, is reviewable, even though it might be a decision of the executive prerogative. In administrative law, uh, I routinely review decisions of the Minister of Public Safety who makes a particular decision that it's not in the national interest for my client to be allowed to remain in Canada. It's a decision of the Minister affecting my client's individual right and therefore, of course, routinely assume that they're subject to judicial review. The Baker model rather than right. Operation Dismantle. Exactly. I'm offering this as an option. Pardon me? Right. Well, <laughs> in my four minutes, I'll try. The standard view would be reasonableness. So the, the issue before the court then would be, is the decision of the prime minister reasonable? And then we go back to what my friends from the uh, Children's uh, and International Law Group said. You bring in the international law through Baker because the international law informs the decision of the MIT prime minister. So that's how you get the international obligations into the administrative law decision. So if you have, when you look at the reasons provided by the Prime Minister, you ask, are these, uh, are these reasons reasonable? And if we go back to Dunsmuir, do the reasons disclose that the Prime Minister considered all of the relevant factors? Did he ignore factors? Did he misconstrue evidence? That would be the basis upon which the court could review this decision. In my submission, when you look at the, the administrative law principles and you look at all of the facts, I won't take you to them, the fact it was a child, the fact that there was torture, but the most important one in my respectful submission, and this goes back to everything my friends have said, is the complicity in the torture. The complicity in the torture cries out for the government to take a reasonable and reasoned decision with respect to Mr. Catter. In uh, Baker, um, I believe the court said that uh, although the reasons may be scant in themselves, if the uh, if you can discern from the record what uh, uh, what might uh, might have been taken into account and the reasons that that was satisfactory, uh, if I'm right, does that mean that we can go back through the entire chronology and uh, see what what 
what what the government knew when they made their 2008 decision? That would be my position, that the, that the Court can consider the entire record when assessing the reasonableness of, of the decision of the Government of Canada. I have one last point, and I have 1 minute and 55, so I want to try and make this, because it's really important because it gets to the issue of remedy. And uh, the, the, it was suggested that you can't get to the remedy of directing the, gov the Government of Canada to make a uh, a direct a decision if we go with the administrative law. And I, I respectfully disagree. If you look at the Federal Court Act, the powers of the Court on Judicial Review, which this is at the beginning, is to remit the decision back with and they can issue any directions that they deem appropriate in the circumstances. So in immigration law, which I practice, uh, we have been successful in certain cases in getting the Federal Court to quash a judicial review of, of a rejected decision of a refugee claim and to direct the Immigration Refugee Board to find that the person is a refugee because on the evidence that was accepted as credible and true, no reasonable person could come to any other decision but the decision to direct. In my respectful submission, when you consider the totality of all of the circumstances, and from the point of view of, uh, of the Canadian Bar Association, the most important one being the complicity of the government of Canada in the torture which is accepted. The only reasonable decision that a reasonably informed prime minister could make, looking at the totality, considering our international law obligations, considering the age of Mr. Catter, considering the complicity in the torture, the only reasonable decision that they could make would be to ask for his repatriation. And I have 13 seconds left. Thank you very much. Mr. Potter. <clears throat> I shall be pleading in French, although I will answer uh, questions in the language in which you prefer to pose them. Um, uh, notre intervention or inter intervention rests on the argument that international authorities could assist the court on two issues. First of all, the question of whether there was a violation, and if so, what was the violation? And second, what must a court do when there is evidence of a violation? Before going further, I would like to uh, raise an argument that is similar to that of uh, Mr. Greenspan. There was not one violation here, but two violations. First of all, there was a violation dealing with procedure that is a non-disclosure of evidence. And second, there was a violation that was known because of the disclosure because it is through the disclosure that we learned that there had been another violation, a substantial violation that is um, interviewing a detained person under the effect of torture. That is a second violation. And uh, the Attorney General said that there had been just one violation and that there had already been a remedy, but that is not accurate. If a person was uh, interviewed under torture, the remedy cannot be to provide a transcript to that person. There must be another remedy. 
Now, the Supreme Court has already said that international authorities can be relevant, can be of assistance in the Doucette Boudreau case. The court said uh, that there had to be a wide interpretation of uh, these authorities to determine whether there had been a violation of the Charter and what would constitute an appropriate remedy. We submit that international authorities are important and we do explain that at paragraphs 5, 6 and 7 of our factum to assist the court. And uh, there are two issues uh, that uh, are obvious from these authorities. The court must be able to declare that there is a violation. The court must state what it has found, but that is not sufficient. It's not enough to simply declare that something wrong happened. Action must be taken. The remedy must be specified. And that can be found in several decisions, such as Camtuta, which is found at tab 25. The court must find affirmative measures. There is a duty to um, address uh, remedy. That's what's said in the Bulacio decision at tab 13. And there's also a footnote uh, containing a series of international authorities that reiterate the same principle uh, that it is not enough to merely make a declaration. There must be a remedy ordered. Why? Because the remedy does not only serve to correct what has happened. This is what is stated in Abdel Rafiq that uh, things must be brought back to the state that they would have been in absent any violation, but there must be remedy not only to repair the situation, but also to avoid the situation from occurring again. And that cannot be achieved through a mere declaration. I submit that in the present case, the file leads to the conclusion that a mere declaration to the executive will not lead to anything significant. I think that the file shows that the executive has chosen not to do much. So a declaration that would be a mere declaration amounts to accepting the fact that not much will be done in this case. So the remedy that is suggested here is 
an imperfect remedy because it doesn't perfectly repair the situation. How would it be possible to remedy the fact that there was torture, that there was an interview of a person who, who'd been submitted to torture? But international authorities show us that uh, a court cannot say, well, time has gone by and that uh, the execution of this uh, repatriation would not be sufficient. There must be something done to repair the situation and to prevent it from occurring again. These conclusions are found in Cantuta, Velázquez, Bilashu, Papa Mikalopoulos, Bulacio, all cases that we have cited. According to the Ilasu judgment in paragraph 487. There are any, are any of those cases, Mr. Potter, examples of courts ordering their own governments to behave in a certain way in connection with another government? Uh, uh, the diplomatic immunity argument. Uh, uh, there are cases which do have to do with, uh, the, with courts ordering executive branches to act in their diplomatic sphere. Let me first of all make two prefaces. First of all, it strikes me as possibly strange that the executive branch should come and say, please don't order me to act in the diplomatic sphere uh, because I'm immune in the diplomatic sphere. When it was in, in the diplomatic sphere that the violations occurred, it was presumably diplomacy which got uh, what the Attorney General refers to as the two bumblers uh, into Guantanamo. It was diplomacy that got us into the problem. Secondly, I also find it strange as a preface that the, the Attorney General would be arguing, oh, please don't argue to do what it is in our power to do, <laughs> what it is our prerogative to do. It seems to me the only thing the court can order be done is something which is within the power of the government to do. And the answer to your question is yes, there are several cases. Uh, first of all, uh, even Canadian cases, Roger Judge and Burns, uh, but there is also the case of Nelson Ivan Serrano Saen, which we have cited, uh, Gerud, which we have cited, uh, Bulacio, which we have cited, all at our paragraph 18 in the factum. And all of those go to uh, the field generally of uh, the executive branch's prerogative uh, outside the border of the country. Um, one case that's uh, 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 interesting on, on uh, that field, uh, I think, is uh, uh, Bulacio, which is at tab 13 in our authorities. Um, uh, at paragraph 72 of that case, it, it is said explicitly that the state cannot say, oh, I'm sorry, that, rep that, that remedy is no good for me because I've got domestic law reasons for not complying. A remedy is a remedy. The appropriate remedy is the appropriate remedy, says Bulacio. Similarly, in the Canadian case of Doucette Boudreau, uh, uh, which is mentioned at paragraph 17 of our factum, 
uh, and other cases which are mentioned there as well, the conclusion is that there cannot be carte blanche. There cannot be a decision by a court, let's not make the reparation because it is within a protected sphere. If that results in a carte blanche for the executive, the very reason for the courts pronouncing itself on what has happened is, uh, is vitiated. Thank you very much. Thank you, Chief Justice, members of the court. You have been offered a number or different variety of lenses through which to examine the issues raised. And on behalf of the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, I wish to put forward a slightly different one, which we commend to you as a way of looking at the legal issues and resolving them in this case. But before I go directly to that analysis, I do want to make an observation about the appellant's position and also the lens we want to adopt. The CCLA says we must be ever mindful that this is a decision made by a Canadian official in Canada concerning a Canadian citizen who is imprisoned abroad and suffering gross violations of his human rights. The question is, will you immunize from charter scrutiny that decision by the state's invocation of the separation of powers doctrine and executive's responsibility for foreign affairs? We say to accede to the appellant's view would be to leave to the executive branch the power to set constitutional boundaries of its own accord without any external restraint brought to bear by the judiciary, whose duty it is to interpret and enforce constitutional limits. Rather than suggesting, as my friend does, that there is a significant intrusion of the judiciary into matters of high policy should this order be made, we submit that the propositions put forward by the appellant on remedy distort the system of checks and balances in our constitutional democracy and trivialize your role as guardians of the Constitution and of fundamental human rights. We take the position that Section 7 is engaged by the decision of Canadian state officials because that decision materially increases the likelihood of a deprivation of liberty or security of a Canadian citizen. Even if the citizen is outside Canada and even if the deprivation will be, a, uh, will be affected by a foreign state actor. So when one asks the question, what is the sufficient causal connection? It's the CCLA's position that that causal connection is satisfied by state action which, in materi which materially increases the risk. Isn't it just another way to put the a positive duty to uh, protect? No. With respect, I think the consequences are different because it calls for procedural protections. But I will not back away from this. And to some extent, your invitation to answer is, invites me to make this observation. We take the view that, like the death penalty, 
When what is being protected is a citizen's need for protection from torture, to gain evidence for a criminal prosecution or for intelligence, that would become and should become a controlling factor in the discretion that is being exercised by the minister. And rather than show deference, which is the standard position everyone is taking, rather than show deference, I ask the court to recall what you said in Burns, that there was something about the death penalty that placed it in the center of what this court was competent to consider. That it didn't matter that at the end of the day, the effect of the remedy was to order the government in almost all cases to turn to a foreign state and say, no, you can't have this person unless you give us reasonable assurances. And we take the view that when it comes to torture, if you look at the history of the common law, you look at how important uh, the controls have been that are placed on police officers and on all aspects of evidence gathering. We left the star chamber. We just didn't leave it. We repudiated what it meant. We repudiated the use of these tools to extract evidence and then use them in a forum for a trial. So while we take the view that Section 7 is engaged, we also take the view that torture becomes a controlling factor. In other words, that you can't have a reasonable decision made by a minister to not ask for repatriation when you have a person who is being tortured and is a Canadian citizen, and that torture, and if there's no torture, that detention, those risks to his security of the person, can be potentially reduced by the request to repatriate. What happens if the torture were, has ceased? Well, what you're doing, with respect, Chief Justice, is a very, um, my friend makes the argument, and it's quite compelling, that you should have regard to what's happened since 2004. And much has changed, and much could change tomorrow. What you're really being invited to do is to say the government's charter obligations can be diminished in this case by the lengthy, unwarranted delay in reaching a decision to ask for repatriation. That's what you're giving them credit for. And in my respectful submission, you ought not to do so. And the government should not be able to take advantage of the fact things have changed when the action owed to Mr. Cotter was owed years ago. Would you say that in the case of a Canadian citizen who's apprehended in the United States and uh, sentenced uh, to be executed, and uh, then there is uh, the uh, lengthy delays in this whole issue of the death row phenomenon mm -hmm. uh, brought about by the delay, that that would also trigger uh, an obligation uh, for the government to intervene? 
It's an interesting question. Uh, the Privy Council, in cases like Pratt, have come to the conclusion that should someone wait beyond five years, even if you assume them to be obliged and, would, and should encourage them to take all steps to prosecute their interests for life, that if it takes longer than five years, the Privy Council has said it cannot happen. Well, I accept now, that is the premise of my question. I know. If I could just take, yes. though, that idea yes. of the death row phenomenon and say, should, should a person serving time in the United States under sentence of death and having waited 20 years to be executed make a request to the Government of Canada for their repatriation, I would expect that there would be a decision that would have to be undertaken, but arguably in that case, there would be no decision that could materially increase the risk. And we have put forward a view that Section 7 is engaged on the basis that the decision materially increases the risk. A person who's on death row, whether they get a request from the Government of Canada or not, uh, may not be able to make any showing of a material increase in risk. On the other hand, if you have a state in the United States that frequently asks, no, that frequently receives requests for clemencies from foreign states and asks on them, and acts on them, maybe it would be a basis to make an argument. I don't want to walk down that walk uh, because it may be indeed a future case and the evidentiary record, I'm sure, would be very different. But you can't foreclose it depending on the conduct of the state as to whether or not uh, one can identify a material risk. Now, I'm sorry, I've got 41 seconds left. If, I, if there's any question I can answer. Thank for you. Anyone. Thank you very much. In an attempt to be of assistance to the court, I wish to address front and center the question that has been raised repeatedly today about where's the link? Where is the link absent complicity? In my submission, this goes to the legal ground, the legal basis upon which the duty, as I allege there is, the duty arises. In my submission, the duty can arise whether or not there is complicity. The circumstances which arise here, in my submission, compel that conclusion for the following reasons. First of all, number one, there's a Canadian that's a victim here of the violative process in the foreign jurisdiction. Number two, the Government of Canada has the power through diplomatic and consular measures to take some kind of remedial action and in fact has done it in the past but appears to have arbitrarily stopped. Number three, <clears throat> rules of customary international law by virtue of the decision in HAPE 
lead to three very important matters that are highly relevant to the court in my submission. First of all, international customary law on human rights incorporates directly, is adopted directly into Canada in the Canadian common law. Number two, these principles that are incorporated into the common law inform the interpretation of the Charter. And thirdly, it has been made clear in HAPE, which in turn cites Slate, that uh, this customary international law establishes a type of minimum standard of conduct that the Government of Canada should be presumed to engage in. And I would like to specifically refer to paragraph 55 in this regard. The content of Canada's international human rights obligations is, in my view, an important addition of the meaning of full benefit of Charter's protection. I believe that the Charter should generally be presumed to provide protection at least as great as that afforded by similar provisions in international human rights documents which Canada has ratified. Now the question becomes, what substantive law can be pointed to under customary international law that may be of assistance to this court? And I wish to direct the court's attention to tab two of our materials, and I wish to specifically refer to paragraph eight. We are relying here on uh, one of the uh, foremost recognized treaties uh, that Canada is a party to, uh, the Covenant on Political and Civil Rights. And specifically, uh, this is a general commentary, which is, in my submission, a very respected interpretive aid to the Covenant. The Covenant not only provides that rights shall be respected, the Covenant also provides that rights shall be ensured. And the interpretation of the word ensure and the implications from the standpoint of a duty are set out in paragraph 8. Positive obligations on states' parties to ensure covenant rights will only be fully discharged if individuals are protected by the state not just against violations of covenant rights by its agents, but also against acts committed by third parties or entities that would impair uh, the enjoyment of covenant rights as they are amenable to application. There may be circumstances a failure to ensure covenant rights as required by Article 2 would give rise to violation by states' parties of those rights as a result of states' parties permitting or failing to take appropriate measures or to exercise due diligence to prevent, punish, investigate, or redress the harm. In my submission, what is being said here, and it's, it's a principle that's been recognized by the European Court of Human Rights in its jurisprudence. It's a principle that has been recognized by the Inter-American Court on Human Rights in its jurisprudence, and indeed by the South African Court in the case re uh, relied on to a certain extent by my, my uh, friend, the appellant. And in all of these situations, the conclusion seems to be, in my submission, that there is a positive duty that arises by virtue of this covenant that, that Canada is bound to, 
that, that the standard of conduct under this duty is one of due diligence. The duty to take all reasonable measures at the disposal of the state. And in my submission, it's what the, what the appellants concede is the power they have that they must exercise to the fullest in accordance with this due diligence standard. And in my submission, when uh, the government comes to this court today and says that it exercised that power to a certain extent, but now it chooses not to, in my submission, that's an arbitrary cutoff. And surely, surely what a victim is entitled to, a victim of human rights abuse, who by virtue of the materials that my friend has relied on, the International Law Commission materials, in 2000 made it clear that the right of the state to uh, do whatever it wants to do with regard to consular and diplomatic protection, made it clear that that was a legal fiction, made it clear that the true beneficiary of that right was the individual, and made it clear that the principle could not be justified in logic or in principle, but could only be justified as a utilitarian measure. And in fact, the 2000 report specifically refers to the fact that in many situations, this is the, quote, more effective remedy relative to the often ineffectual remedies found under international human rights law. This is, quote, an obvious remedy with the longest history and a proven record of effectiveness. And this will be treated more seriously by states than international human rights actions. And what the rapporteur in the 2000 report also said was that the key factor to take into account here, because we're talking about effective remedy, is the vulnerability of the victim, the true beneficiary of those rights. And in my submission, at least, at least this court should require the government of Canada to take all reasonable measures and exercise due diligence to the fullest in every effort to uh, do what it can to extricate this man from his predicament. And surely, without giving proper reasons, full reasons, without uh, giving justification for the arbitrary cutoff, surely there comes a point where that kind of a matter in the abdication of that duty to which I refer becomes a reviewable matter. And that standard of review, uh, the standard of conduct to which I referred, becomes then the means by which to review either administratively or under the charter the conduct that has been engaged in by the government. And that is a standard if we take the common law as being the given here from the standpoint of customary international law being incorporated into it, then that can become the standard for administrative law review. If one wishes to take it further in terms of review under the charter, as I said earlier, as per HAPE, the common law is, in, is a, a, a principle that then informs charter interpretation. And if the principle under international law, as I submit it is, is that there is a positive duty of due diligence in the face of human rights abuse by a third party state, 
then this becomes a matter that informs the principles of fundamental justice under Section 7 of the Charter. So I would ask the Court to consider the significance of international law in this case. I suggest, contrary to the appellants, that there is a link in international law, and the link is of tremendous importance in this case, and that that link is something that closes the loop, so to speak, and justifies the granting of an effective remedy, as the Special Rapporteur has said should happen through the exercise of diplomatic and consular powers. Thank you. Reply. Yes, uh, thank you, Chief Justice. Justices, I'll be very brief because uh, our general response is that most of the arguments put against us today are answered in our factum. Um, I, I want to reply to three points made by the respondent and um, to some extent by the interveners. First, with respect to the facts, uh, there are differences between us uh, on the facts, and I'd ask you in looking at the facts to look at the record. Uh, because it, in my submission, my friend uh, tends to go outside the record for some of his facts. The facts uh, that I want to deal with, um, it, it, there's been an assumption this morning uh, that uh, torture is somehow, uh, torture by American officials is somehow accepted rather than a fact that ought to be proven in an American court. There's also seems to be an uh, assumption that we've uh, been complicit um, and I want to go back to the interviews uh, that started in February of uh, 2003. Those interviews by CSIS took place 18 months after 9-11. CSIS went to and interviewed Mr. Cotter, as the Federal Court of Appeal said in its judgment, in the majority judgment, because his father and brothers went to al-Qaeda training camps. Did they know he had been abused at that time? There is no evidence of that in my respectful submission. Did they, uh, did they contribute or participate in the abuse at all in those interviews? In the record are the DVDs of those interviews. I'd ask you to watch those DVDs. The very first DVD of the first interview shows a relaxed and cooperative Mr. Cotter uh, answering the, the questions uh, that were posed to him. Thereafter, on the subsequent days, uh, he started to make complaints uh, of, uh, of abuse that my friend um, conceded were, were nonspecific. Uh, the, the record further shows, and this is in Volume 3, ex Exhibit EE, e. in looking at, uh, in looking at uh, the, his claims at that time, they were not accepted by the uh, officials. They did not ring true. That was their position. Thereafter, as more reports, more information became available to Canada, uh, including from Mr. Cotter himself, because in December of 2004, through his counsel, uh, there was an affidavit uh, that uh, detailed in great detail uh, his allegations of torture. Canada responded immediately to that. Uh, I, again, I ask you to go to the timeline that I've given you. In February 2005, there was a direct response to that. But to say that Canada was in somehow, uh, in some way complicit 
in any sort of abuse flies against any recognized legal test. The tests that were, uh, are relevant under the Charter in my submission are Blanco and Suresh, which suggest a uh, causal link. I'd ask you as well to look at the International Law Commission, tab 7 of our com condensed book, where we've included the commentaries that also indicate a similar sort of standard, or the ARAR report, which is a cause or contribute standard. That standard does not show that in it, Canada in any way caused or contributed to uh, any uh, abuse of Mr. Cotter. My second point is my friend has suggested, uh, with respect to the duty, of, duty to protect, that somehow it's permissible simply to consider that in considering remedy. I don't understand that. Uh, frankly, uh, the question is, is there a charter breach? That is where the duty to protect is relevant. Does it exist or not? Uh, thirdly, my friend in response to the question about the value of declaratory relief uh, said it had no value. And I disagree with him for this reason, and I think it's important for the court. The court has before it seven cases at the moment uh, coming out uh, of Telezone uh, being one of the cases. They're up for argument in, Feb in uh, January, I believe. The issue in that case is whether you can sue the federal government for damages in federal court without for where your complaint is that the government acted illegally. Can you bring that suit if you haven't uh, sought judicial review of the, uh, the government's action that you're complaining of? So if the result of this was some sort of uh, declaratory uh, uh, judgment about his uh, violation of his rights, it's not true that is, it is without value. It may be of value to him in his ongoing damage claim. Uh, fourth, uh, the fourth point I'd make uh, simply with respect to administrative law, um, the claim that was made by Amnesty that we never uh, took any of the claims seriously is belied by that timeline of requests. Uh, with respect to the other administrative law issues, I'd ask you to look at pages 31 and 32 of our factum. With respect to Human Rights uh, Watch's uh, 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 suggestion to you that the linkage, the missing linkage in this case is provided by citizenship, uh, it was very nicely put by Mr. Norris, but uh, what he's asking you to do is overrule HAPE. Uh, with respect to the claim that the best interests of the child uh, govern here, in my respectful submission, you still got to get to a charter breach. And what this court said was, notwithstanding the importance of the best interests of the child, they are not a principle of fundamental justice. And how you get over that hurdle to a charter breach is problematic. Um, with respect to uh, remedy, um, you heard that there ought to be a due diligence standard. My friend in his, uh, in his factum suggests that Canada's obligation is to make best efforts. With respect, those are invitations to perpetual judicial review of Canada's uh, efforts in foreign relations and ought to be rejected. Um, 
Finally, uh, with respect to the delay in decision-making, there is no delay in decision-making by the Canadian government in my submission. Uh, it, again, go back to that timeline because when we got information, we acted on it, we made the requests, and we drew the line at one request. Those would be my submissions. will reserve its decision in this matter. The court stands adjourned. <laughs>